Good morning, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and my son, Wally, in the background, who you probably <laughs> just heard walk by. <laughs> sadly, sadly, we are not joined this morning. We are once again missing the Tolkien maven, Trish Lambert, which is, as always, a huge, huge loss. Um, but we will have to soldier on, because we That's have important, right. important things to discuss like the uh, like the waning of the light of the trees, that's right, and some fun um, or some, the blooming, some, some more the, fun uh, action. Depending on your point of view, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true, and some more some more fun action in Balerion, some more uh, adventures, and then of course uh, there is the ongoing Amros controversy. So, <laughs> yes. how are you this morning, Corey? I am excellent and so ready to address the Amros controversy. Uh, yeah, no, I'm great. I'm uh, uh, excited to be back uh, for those, of course, who are following with us live. It's been a long gap. I was away and couldn't really reschedule on either side. So it's been four weeks since our last session. Um, uh, which means, as usual, I've forgotten almost everything that we talked about before. But I vaguely remember Emros, so we'll uh, um, we'll 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 talk about that. Um, uh, so tonight, so uh, before we start, to a couple quick announcements. I got a bunch of things to discuss here today, um, but uh, two two announcements I want to emphasize, both event related. Uh, one is London Moot. This is our next regional event, and just you know to sort of make sure that people are understanding the whole idea of our regional moot. Sometimes I've, when I've heard people talk about it, it's um, we've been doing Myth Moot for a long time. You know, our, well, it's, it's our fifth one. It's a long time as far as we're concerned. Um, and, uh, you know, Myth Mood has been a, a really big event, and I know that lots of people, you know, who follow the podcast or, you know, who have been involved with Signum and Mythgard have heard me talk about Myth Mood on many occasions, you know, over the years. Um, and so I think that a lot of people sort of have the, you know, as I've been talking about, you know, doing moods all over the place and, and all of, you know, the growth of our, our regional moot program, which is super exciting, and I'm, 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 I'm absolutely loving everything that's been happening with that. Um, but I've gotten the impression that a lot of people are sort of thinking like, the, you know, the, it's like, you know, Mythmoot is, we're taking Mythmoot on the road and doing it all over the place. Uh, that's not really actually the case. Um, Mythmoot is a major thing. Mythmoot is a four-day conference. Um, our regional events are one-day conferences. The whole point of the regional events is to give people an opportunity to come to a gathering where you can, you know, you can hang out with awesome, like-minded people. Um, I look forward to a chance to meet as many of you as I can when I go around to these regional events um, just because uh, I know not everybody can travel to Mythmood. We can only... Mythmood is one event. We can only have it in one place, right? And uh, we have chosen for it a uh, location which is as, uh, you know, about as central as we can make it, which is the, the, the mid-Atlantic area near Washington, D.C. Um, it's pretty much equidistant from, you know, almost everything on, on the eastern side of the Mississippi. Uh, and it's not convenient for people from California, but it's no less convenient for them than it is for the people in Europe. So, you know, it's, we, it's, it's, we, we can only make it in one place, and that's the best we could do uh, as far as locating it is concerned. But we know that not everybody can come out, and not everybody can afford to come. It's a bigger deal. It costs more because it's a full four-day event. You're getting, you know, uh, uh, events and meals for four full days. 
So for people who either can't afford to go or people who can't get themselves out uh, physically to the location, we want to be able to come to you. We want to be able to at least uh, give, give you a chance to sort of get together uh, uh, with uh, other people in your area, you know, for us to get a chance to meet you. Um, so the regional events are really wonderful, wonderful opportunities for that uh, uh, way, and which why we keep them as, as inexpensive as we possibly can. Most of them are 30 bucks or less for, uh, for the, the, uh, the registration fee for the, for the day long event. Um, so yeah, it's those are those are those are really wonderful. But of course, the, the, it's not the same thing as MythMood, and of course, MythMood is our big, it's our four day thing. It's and it's a good deal more than four times as awesome uh, as um, uh, as as uh, the regional events. But uh, what is the story, yeah. like? Is there is there a qualitative difference apart from sort of length? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, so for one thing, we have uh, uh, usually at our regional events where we don't, we're not able to like bring in a lot of like big special guests. I mean, I come, but apart from me, there's 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 uh, usually not like a, a major speaker or something. Sometimes we can get we can you know bring in somebody um, that we have a relationship with who lives nearby or something like that. But uh, most of the time we can't. So that's one thing. So like for instance, at Mythmoot this year, John Garth, author of Tolkien and the Great War is coming. Douglas Anderson, the uh, the editor of the Annotated Hobbit, is coming. Um, you know, the uh, uh, Mark Ockrand, the guy who invented the Klingon language, is coming to give Klingon language lessons. You know, stuff like that. There's just we don't have the opportunity to do that kind of thing uh, at regional events. Um, and in addition, I would just say it also. There's so much more opportunity for a, a wider variety of activities when you're there for four days. You know, like it's not just you know, for the one day events, we just, we pretty much kind of, you know, like get together and like have, you know, give papers, have discussions, uh, you know, it's just fun to get together and talk about this stuff, you know, with, uh, with, with fun, like minded people, um, for, uh, uh, for, for a day. But of course we do more than just, just sit around and talk, uh, at the, uh, uh, at Mythmoot, you know, we're able to do, uh, you know, we, we do, we're doing, you know, in addition to that, like our masquerade ball and poetry competitions and even just the opportunity to sit around and, and you know, and we have sometimes like, uh, you know, uh, uh, we have artists and musicians and, and uh, uh, even, again, just the opportunity since everyone's there for several days to sit around the, you know, to sit around the fire pits out in the courtyard and talk until two o'clock in the morning. Um, it's just a totally different kind of atmosphere and situation. So uh, anyway, it's it's. Yeah, it, it, Mythmood is a different world, uh, and I definitely encourage people to make it out to Mythmood if you possibly can. But the regional events, I'm I, again, I'm excited because it's going to enable us to be able to connect with so much, so many more people. Because I know that a lot of people can't come uh, to Mythmood, and uh, uh, it was one of the things that uh, motivated me to do the regional moots. Was every year, you know, when I announce Mythmood and talk about it, hearing from all the people on Twitter and you know in our live broadcasts and stuff who are saying things like, "Oh man, I wish I could come, but I just can't," um, you know. So. Uh, uh, you know, we're uh, delighted to sort of create other um, opportunities uh, uh, for that. But, um, but anyway, so 
uh, we have uh, both are coming up, so we have Mythmoot uh, itself approaching in June. Um, the deadline, though, for the call for papers is on March fifteenth. Um, so, and you can find the, all the information on the web page which I gave there. Just go to Signum University if you're listening. Just go to signumuniversity.org uh, and you'll find the uh, the Mythmoot. Uh, 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 link little little tile for Mythmoot there on the homepage, um, which will get you to the page which has links to all the stuff that you need, the registration links as well as all the information and and uh, uh, the the call for papers link there as well. Um, so uh, and London Moot on April twenty eighth for especially for those of you over in Europe who are uh, you know not able to get over here, which I totally understand. Um, I'm delighted to be able to go over there and meet with you guys at last. It's going to be on April 28th. The call for papers for that has been extended to March 28th, so anybody who wants to participate, who thinks they might want to lead a discussion or or, or, or give a paper or something like that, please do uh, 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 fill out the call for papers there and just uh, uh, make a proposal, and, and we can... Uh, we can talk about some awesome stuff. Uh, There's a separate website for that, londonmoot.com. So I hope that people will be able to join us there. We've got a a really good registration for that so far. Uh, And I I love looking through these lists, you know, and seeing on these lists names of people I've been seeing and, you know, attendee lists for a long time and I've never gotten a chance to meet before. So that's going to be, that's going to be really great. So I wish the, I could go to that one. Yeah, it's uh, it is going to be. I can see that was actually another funny thing that it, that made me smile when I was looking at the list of people registered. Is that I recognized several people uh, who are uh, a sort of uh, kind of a, part of our regular crowd. People who often do make it to Mythmoot and stuff, but who are clearly taking the excuse of London Moot to get over to England and uh, uh, and and just kind of be there for a while. And so they're gonna gonna come by while they're over there. I'm very glad to provide an excuse for uh, uh, for people to travel over to England. So that's fun. Um, all right. So those are the announcements for today. So I want to begin by talking about a, a, a addressing sort of a general question. This came up at the end last time, and I know it came up on the discussion boards as well. Um, the Amros situation. So let's talk about the Amros situation. Uh, first... Uh, and you guys can help me to remember the, uh, the, 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 the situation to make sure I'm not screwing anything up. The problem that we were facing, and, and this, we were discussing this in our last session, was Amrod is dead, right? So we've killed off Amrod at the burning of the ships. And we were doing that in following a potential storyline that Tolkien suggested in one of his later writings, but which, of course, didn't make the published Silmarillion. But we thought it was cool, and we decided that we wanted to include it. So we had uh, we had Amrod die, uh, and then Amros is left. And so the big question is, how does Amros respond to the death of Amrod? And there were several possibilities of what he could do and how he could respond. One that I was suggesting is that he dies soon afterwards. <laughs> I was I was enthusiastic to kill him off, possibly have him commit suicide, um, uh, which uh, uh, which reading you know which storyline I'm still prepared to defend, <laughs> though I gather it's unpopular uh, from the discussion boards. And we've got now two people uh, threater, uh, threatening Twitter wars uh, <laughs> in the comments here. Um, uh, but anyway, um, 
So we're going to talk about Amros. But before we actually talk about the Amros situation in particular, I wanted to kind of back up from that a second. Uh, because one of the things that sort of, uh, I don't know if it's fair to say it surprised me, but um, uh, which I was sort of a little bit taken aback by, were the responses that I was initially getting last time about just about like why change the story. Um, and I found this puzzling, mostly in, in the case of Emros, I found it puzzling because it's not like he's necessary. I mean, it's mentioned that he's there. Like we're, we're told that he dies, uh, you know, at the at the the third kinslaying, you know, at the the, the battle in the at the Havens uh, um, uh, down in Balar. Uh, you know, when, when, when Elwing is lost. Um, so we're told he dies there. And that's like the only other mention we get of him pretty much in the whole published Silmarillion. So he is not instrumental in any story, apart from the fact that he's supposed to be killed off in that battle. He literally does nothing, has not one single line of dialogue in the entire published Silmarillion. So I was kind of surprised that people were like attached to that storyline. I'm like, what's to be attached to? He doesn't even do anything. Um, and, uh, and merely to say that like, well, but he's supposed to die there. Well, yeah, so is Amrod, but we killed him off already too. Uh, so anyway, um, it's, um, um, there's, okay, I'm not saying that there's no way that that storyline could be developed in interesting ways. I was just a little bit surprised by people saying like, but, but it's in the text. Why should we deviate from the text if we don't have to? And so that's what I want to address first. Before we talk about the specific Amros issues, I want to address uh, that bigger question. So uh, I want to and slavishly following the text. I thought we were. I thought we were beyond that, people. See, I kind of did too. But I mean, I get it. Like, it's not like I'm anti-respect for the text, obviously. Um, but I want to. But I want to. So, so I, I, I was thinking for for a little bit. I'm like, all right, let me enumerate this. What is a good reason to deviate from the text? Okay, so let, let me just lay this out. What I consider good reasons to deviate from the text so that if one of these situations come up, my hope is that we don't have to go here again and say like, but wait, it's in the text. Like, cause I, and, and, and if you disagree with any of these, I'd be interested to hear people disagree with them. Um, but I think that any of these is a good reason to deviate from the text. Now, keep in mind, this doesn't mean that if one of these, if the opportunity for one of these things comes up, we should automatically change anything, you know, that it's like open season on anything in the text. Of course, you always have to, to, to count the cost when you change the text, right? You have to say, what do you lose? Um, what are we losing both now and down the road? If we, uh, uh, if we make the alteration, this alteration to the text, that's why, by the way, I was not considering, um, I wasn't even thinking, much at all about the, the the seriousness of killing off Amros early because there seemed to me very little cost to uh, uh, to to that particular deviation. As as I said, he's almost a complete non-character through the entire rest of the published Silmarillion. But anyway, um, okay. So what is a good reason to deviate from the text? To pursue another narrative or world-building line that Tolkien elsewhere considered. This is something we've several we've you know, and this is kind of. Uh, not exactly even a, a, a exactly a question about deviating from the text, but rather sort of an acknowledgement of the kind of text that the Silmarillion is, right? Um, the published Silmarillion is not Tolkien's final work. Like, it's not really... A, 
There is a sense in which you could say the Silmarillion is not a work by Tolkien in the sense of – certainly not in the same way that The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are. Um, he never did finish producing the story and there are lots of ideas that he had, some of which – he rejects and moves on from some of which he just doesn't include, but it's, it may be that that concept is still in his mind. It just doesn't make it into the story itself. Christopher Tolkien points out a bunch of these, um, or at least the possibility of a bunch of these kinds of things, uh, in the history of middle earth, his commentaries in the history of the middle earth series. Um, and also, and there are some which are later ideas, which he was planning to go back and add into the Silmarillion, but never got around to it. And so, and when Christopher edit the, edits the published Silmarillion and puts it together in order to publish it, um, he chooses generally the most finished versions of the text because his sort of the one of the primary principles that Christopher Tolkien was using in assembling the, the Silmarillion for publication was that he he seemed to want to compose as little prose himself as possible, right? Um, so if there were a situation where you have a story from the Silmarillion tradition which Tolkien wrote in its entirety in an early stage and was planning to make major changes to down the road but never actually wrote the prose for that... Uh, Christopher tends to use the earlier version that Tolkien actually wrote. Like, he, he goes with the actually told story by Tolkien and includes that in the published Silmarillion. But that doesn't mean that it even represents Tolkien's... Uh, not even his final thoughts. It might not even be his second to final thoughts. I mean, he might have changed his mind two or three times since he wrote that original version, which, made, which you know Christopher included um, into the published Silmarillion. So... Um, uh, anyway, um, that's – yeah, uh, uh, Tony, the Goadriel story is an, is an excellent example um, uh, of this. Um, so yeah, anyway, th- there, there's – so one of the things that we like to do and we have done already many times in our adaptation is to go through not only the published text um, but to be looking at things like the, the, the Book of Lost Tales and you know, the earlier versions of the story. Are there any elements from that that we really like that we would like to include? And we've already done that in several ways. Um, we included, for instance, elements of, uh, you may remember, elements of the original story of Melkor's destruction of the lamps back from season one. Some of that, a lot of that stuff was inspired by the Book of Lost Tales uh, telling of the story rather than the published Silmarillion telling of the story. Um, and of course, the death of Amrod is a is is one of the biggest examples of that we've had yet, where we've taken one of his later ideas that he never went and added back into the Silmarillion, and we decided that we want to run with it. So we're we're killing off Amrod uh, at the burning of the ships. Um, so that is one obvious reason. And as I said this is barely even a question about deviating from the text. It's just a question of what text we're dealing with. But that's why I wanted to start with that one. Second reason to create or improve consistency in the over all narrative. One of the things that we always have to remember when we're talking about adapting the Silmarillion is that we're adapting it essentially in two different ways at once. We are, of course, talking about adapting it from a print medium to a visual medium on film. And, you know, we've talked about that on many occasions and that often comes up. But that's not even what I'm talking about here. Um, There's another way in which we are adapting the uh, the the story, and that is we're changing the kind of narrative that it is, and it's easy to kind of overlook that at times. I think um, that is the Silmarillion is it's not a it's not a novel, 
right? It's not giving us like the, uh, or at least only very occasionally is it giving us the kind of character development, um, sort of following the, the, the lives and developments of the thoughts of, 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 of characters and the sort of the down close to, uh, to the ground uh, stories over time um, that we, you know, we, you would get if it were like a novel version. So, for instance, to give some examples of what of the kinds of changes that I'm talking about here, um, one of the classic examples is this character must have been at that event according to the logic of the plot that the Silmarillion tells, but of course he's never mentioned and we don't know. And, but we have to think about what he's doing. Uh, one of the immediate examples of this that comes to mind is the, the, the story, the little mini storyline that we gave of who on the hound at the kinslaying, right? Um, who on must've been on one of the boats, like it, logically based on everything else we're told in the Silmarillion, who on the hound must've been on one of the boats in the Harbor at the Kinslaying. The question, what did who do during the Kinslaying is obviously never a question that the text text asks or answers, right? The text is not interested in that question. It's not interested in the in the in the character of Huon until he comes into the Baron and Luthien story. But we are adapting this story from that kind of uh, you know collection of historical. Uh, 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 you know, overviews, which is mostly what we get in the published Silmarillion. It's this, uh, you know, what in my series on the history of Middle Earth, I've I've called the the plot summary genre uh, that he has developed over the course of of uh, writing the Silmarillion. Um, so we're taking what are often sort of uh, uh, epitomes are the words is the word that Christopher Tolkien uses. Plot summary is the one that I use, um, and. Uh, uh, we're taking those and we're trying to, you know, turn them into, uh, you know, narratives where we're like close to the characters and we're, and we're trying to build a consistent story in which these, these characters and stories developed, uh, develop all together over time. So, um, uh, anyway, I, I, so those are the, those, and there are also some other larger issues, right? Um, there are some other ways in which we can see the effect of the kind of historical epitomizing style of the Silmarillion, which when you get down on ground level, some of the things just don't work that well. Like the long argument I made about the sleep of Yavanna on the plants and animals in Middle Earth, um, which I think is just, it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense when you're actually down on the ground walking among the, you know, and trying to support thousands of elves for thousands of years, uh, uh, on that, in that kind of an environment. So, um, there are some times in which I just in order to make the story work and be consistent on the level at which we're telling it in the form in which we're telling it, we have to make changes. Third reason to better suit the story to the medium of visual storytelling, as I already alluded. This is that second level of adaptation, right? And there have been some times when we have made changes, like, for instance, the change we just talked about making with not seeing the lights of the burning, you know, uh, Fingolfin not being able to see the lights of the burning from where they are. Because if we have the lights of the burning showing up on the horizon, it's going to make uh, it's it's going to make the sea look really, really narrow, uh, like it's just a couple miles away. Uh, and it's therefore going to give the impression that they should be able to cross the Hell Caraxa in about two or three hours, right? Um, and going to make everybody why they're, uh, wonder why they can't. So, um, 
uh, anyway, um, I, um, um, I, so obviously there are some times when we have to think about the adaptation to the medium of visual storytelling to follow the logical results of an earlier event or a character's development. And this is a really tricky one, right? And this is where we get into what I was talking about before about counting the cost of some of the other changes that we make. Um, And this is, by the way, something that Tolkien himself was very willing to do. Many of these other changes, these later ideas that he had, which are not represented in his earlier writings and therefore in large part not represented in the published Silmarillion, they would have necessitated massive changes to the narrative changes which he was apparently willing to make. I mean, we see Tolkien, when you read the History of Middle-Earth series, we see Tolkien in his later life willing to get rid of the entire flat-earth concept, have the sun and moon be in the sky from, like, as the Valar are descending into Arda for the first time. Uh, He's willing to have Galadriel and Celeborn meet in Valinor and sail across separately, and, and, I mean, there are lots of things that he's willing to change, which would have required vast change, would have had vast implications uh, for uh, the entirety of his story that he was that he was either entertaining or actively planning, but never followed through on. Um, so, and this is what's more very much Tolkien's method. He he talks about this in his letters. You know, like the the rationale behind the original rationale behind his stories um, is not uh, the way he talks about it is not as like a craftsman who is trying to shape the narrative, um, but rather somebody who is saying, what would this character like what trying to discover what actually happened next? Right. Um, Yeah. I'm thinking for instance, about the letter where he talks about what happens at the cracks of doom and, you know, Gollum's actions and, and, you know, the Gollum's taking of the ring and falling into the cracks of doom. Um, And, you know, when he explained that he's like, it's, he did that not because he was trying to make a point. I mean, it does make a point and it works in, 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 you know, and shows some really important themes and ideas, but Tolkien was explaining in his letters, he didn't write that scene because he had some really important themes and ideas that he was trying to get across. Um, he wrote that scene that way because, as he said, like, that's what Gollum would do. Like, that's, you know, it's what must happen. Under the, when you have, having established what he's established about those characters, about those, about, uh, about the circumstances, and then you put them in those circumstances, this is the thing that happened next. It's how he wrote. It's how he conceived. Um, uh, so... Uh, so anyway, yeah, uh, Tony, I agree. Tony Mead is saying uh, uh, from the History of Middle-Earth series, it seems like it's always plot first. That is the overall outline, like what is the event that's supposed to occur? Plot first, then character, then world building, then themes. Yeah, uh, that seems – and and all of those are things I would add that he's just sort of discovering as he goes along, right, um, as he often talks about it. Anyway, the point that I'm making here is that we need to be – willing to do the same thing, right? And this, of course, uh, is where we're going to go to next with the Emros question, because the Emros question is exactly this question, right? Um, what are the logical results of the earlier event um, or of, uh, of, you know, of the character's development? Having killed off Amrod, having, having decided that we're going to have Amrod die uh, at the burning of the ships, we have to follow that through. You know, we can't just... Uh, we can't just have Emros carry on, 
You know, it's going to affect him. How's it going to affect him? Um, and we need to make sure that we're thinking about that. Uh, and my fifth reason is to make something awesome happen. There will be times when I think like it's worth it, you know, when it's worth it for us to do something which has no warrant in the text. Um, now I'm reluctant to do, uh, to make changes of a, of a positive kind that is to, um, to, to change something that's actually, to, to remove something that's actually in the text. There will be times I will advocate for this because I think it would be really awesome, uh, in the story that we're telling. Um, uh, but I am more likely to say, let's add something that's not alluded to at all in the text. Um, because it would be awesome for us to do that. So for instance, uh, again, a recent example of that is our, sort of semi-eucatastrophic or nearly-eucatastrophic intervention of the Ents um, in the battle with the Green Elves and Orcs, right? Um, You know, there's no warrant in the text for that kind of thing. But it's, on the one hand, sort of like point two, right, to create or improve consistency. We have already established that Treebeard and the Ents are really close with the Green Elves, so it's like a kind of thing that would happen and that certainly Treebeard would want to do. Um, And also it's awesome, right? Uh, having, having the, uh, the, the great wood come to the high hill, like, come on, man, like, of course we should do that. Uh, and you know, the, the ways in which we can do, uh, sort of another very Tolkienian thing, which is to create these sort of repeating patterns, right? To have, to have the Ents arrival at, um, uh, at the, you know, at the the battle with the Green Elves, uh, to, to have them arrive at that battle be this kind of anticipation of the catastrophe of the uh, of the 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 Ents arriving uh, at the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? You know, to have that be a be a parallel. Those kinds of parallels Tolkien loves, and his stories are full of them. Uh, so I love to create those kinds of parallels because, uh, again, it seems like a even if we're doing a thing, you know, telling a, 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 a an episode that Tolkien didn't tell. Um, you know, I still, I want to do that in order to try to do a kind of thing that Tolkien would do. Right. So anyway, those are, um, uh, um, those are, um, so that's, that's what I mean when I say to make something, I'm I'm willing to make a change to make something awesome happen. I, I, I don't want to overuse that last rationale, but, uh, but I have to admit that it exists. So, uh, Dave, anything you'd want to add or or uh, 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 or alter or argue with in this list? No, I think I'm I, I I'm definitely definitely share this line of thinking and reasoning. Like you're mm-hmm. you're at least as far as I'm concerned, you're preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if we should address do you, do uh, do we should we discuss um, um, uh, the specifics of the Amros case? Cause, um, yeah, cause, yeah. cause several of the folks are articulating yeah. concerns about Amros, about the Amros deviation in the, in the logic of the, the logic of the story and that kind of stuff, which I think is, I think um, if you go back to the other points really fast, yeah. um, I think the, the, the pri- I think the, the only really valid, well, okay. I guess I'm inclined to agree with the with the general ethos of like let's not deviate willy nilly like let's right. not make wanton change right you know that, I mean, that, that, yeah you'll you'll notice not included in this list is uh, to provide the modern moviegoer with what they really want right <laughs> yeah know, yeah right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. To, yeah you don't see anything on there that's like 
to facilitate a snazzy CGI effect. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or romantic to, encounter. Exactly. <laughs> to give us an excuse for like a scantily clad female or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. No. Right. Or to, or, or to, um, and I think that, um, I, I, I think, I think, I, I think, and I, and I think none of these things, like, I think there's nuances in some of these things, like, you know, um, to, to make something awesome happen or to, to, to better suit the story or make the, the story, um, more consistent i don't think the there's sort of a there's sort of a a, a caricature um, or straw man version of these which mm-hmm. is um you know to to basically sacrifice a character to make um to to in service to some particular plot point that has to happen because you know it has right. to happen and right and something has to happen to somebody so i guess we'll do it to this guy and it's more right. expedient that way you know like right. i don't think any of these things are advocating for that so 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 i'm sympathetic to the general ethos of like let's keep the gravity of the you know and when i say gravity i don't mean the seriousness i mean like the sort of the metaphor for the the you know the the physical force the gravity right. of the story like right. let's let's keep keep the the story the text at the center um but but let's not slavishly follow it. Like, like I'm against sort of a, you know, um, we all, we can only change things if we have an incredibly good reason to, because, yeah. uh, you know, like, because it just can't work because I don't know. I mean, come on folks, we've been doing this for how many seasons now? Like we've changed so many things and we've well, been fine with it. And, and, and the fact is like at the bottom line, the, just, so, People have heard me say this for many years now, ever since, you know, Dave, we were doing Riddles in the Dark. Um, yeah. When you're looking at an adaptation, you have to understand that it is its own story. Like, you can't yep. just judge it based on the text. Um, you can, of course, interrogate its relationship to the text and think about that and decide whether you like it or not, you know, like what it did with the story or not. Um, but you have to first understand it on its own grounds. It is its own story. And then we think about how that story that the film is telling is related to the story of the book um, and how interestingly it does make that connection. The corollary to this from the other end, right, from the filmmaking standpoint, is that our first allegiance is to our story, not to the book, right? Our first allegiance has to be to the story that we are telling. Um, That's where adjectives like slavish become relevant, right? Um, if, if what you're trying to do is just project the book up onto the screen, it's going to stink. I mean, every adaptation that has done that is pretty much stunk. Um, you have to think about your own story first. Um, and obviously you never forget the text and you always are thinking about the, the, you know, the, the relation we're trying to bind, you know, our story as closely to the text as we can, but that's not the same thing as saying we're just following the tech. No, we're following our story. Um, our story is moving along in parallel to the text, very close parallel in many places, but but less so in others. And that's not only okay, that's absolutely necessary in order to actually, for us to actually be telling a good story. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I'm inclined to agree, um, but I guess people... F- People, based on the, the 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 forum discussions and the summary in our Google Doc and the co- questions rolling in on the go to webinar interface, people clearly feel like they have uh, le- 
legitimate objections to the Amros totally cool. I'm absolutely happy to discuss the Amros story on its own ground. I just wanted to kind of I felt that this needed to be addressed in the in a kind of an objective uh-huh. way because I feel that there is and I totally understand and respect that kind of twitch, you know, that sort of impulse which says like, wait, we're deviating from the text. Wait, wait, wait. Um, and I get that and I respect that. And I think it's good to be sort of cautious about that. Um, but I don't want us to get caught up on um, on on arguments about that general. I mean, like. I, I want us all to kind of agree, be able to agree in, in principle on these things. If you don't, by the way, please post on it. I'd be happy to hear objections either to any item here or if there's something that I've left out or, you know, a sort of a philosoph- uh, you know, a philosophy I'm not considering or whatever. Um, but uh, uh, but but I, if we could kind of agree on this, that would help that would help us not to be able to have to have the like, but why are we changing the text argument every time? You know, let's not focus on that. Let's just focus on the actual changes themselves. Uh, it would be uh, it would be cool. Um, so. Um, OK, um, now let's talk about Amros. Okay, so these right, are these are right. these are thoughts and comments uh, drawn from, and there's a lot of discussion on the discussion board, and, and not everything is represented here. Um, but here are thoughts about Amros. The general consensus was that uh, people don't want to kill him off. Um, so let me just read through these things, and then we can kind of talk about. Uh, there's some, uh, you know, general ideas that I want to talk about here. Okay, so his grief and despair can shape his story for the rest of this season, but we can resolve that to an extent with the rescue of Mithros in season four. Okay, so so this is to say, yes, he's going to be in despair, but we don't want to leave him in despair, right? We want to move him forward from that. I mean, okay, like I can see how that could happen. Uh so what, what, what would we do? The proposal, moving forward, he can be the voice of the oath and the reminder of the doom of Mandos. Not a cheery guy and not overly happy with his family, but no more dysfunctional or angry than Turgon, who suffered a similar loss this season and blames the same event for it, the ship burning. Okay, I'm very resistant to the parallel between Emros and, Tol- and, and uh, Turgon. I don't think their situations are very similar at all, actually. Um... Uh, I mean, you can say that the ship burning is is responsible for both of them, and it's kind of true. Um, but the ship burning is the cause of de- like the ship burning of the ships is what is on Amrod's death certificate. Okay, uh, whereas uh, you know uh, Turgon's wife uh, dies as like an indirect in, uh, result, but there are a whole bunch of choices that happen between there and then that lead to the the burning of the ships doesn't force them to cross the Helcaraxa. They chose to cross the Helcaraxa. Right. Um, and anyway, so I disagree that Turgon and Amros are in anything like the same situation. I mean, OK, like in the sense that they're both bereaved. But uh, um, but I, I think the situations are so different that I would not parallel them very closely myself. Um, his staunch opposition to Kurofin can help keep Mithros in power until after the fifth battle. I am definitely willing to listen to arguments about Amros being part of the... Uh, we've already kind of... Last time, we were really kind of raising up Mithros and Kurufin as the, the sort of centers of power in the post-Feanor world of the Feanorians, right? Um, and having Amros play a significant role in the sort of politics of the Feanorians... I agree would be a reason to keep him um, if we can have a role for him that makes sense. 
the, the shift to despair after the failure of the union of Mithros leads to the future kinsling. So Amros's despair. So Amros is going to despair again, or anew, or differently after the um, the near night Arnodiad. Um, I mean, uh, you know, given like that's hardly forced, right? I mean, there's lots of reasons for despair after the near night Arnodiad, um, uh, but um, yeah. Okay. Um, in East Beleriand, he can play a peripheral role in the stories of the trade with the dwarves, the discovery of men, and the decision of the Adain to move west. He could. Yeah, I don't see him as being necessary for any of those things. Like, we have other people for those roles. The trade with the dwarves, we're told, is specifically Caranthir, uh, is primarily involved of, of all the Feanorians with that. So... Um, Amros would seem to me to be a kind of an add-on to that story, which seems to me not really needed. I mean, it could, could work, but uh, I don't see any reason for it. Um, for the discovery of men, maybe? I mean, uh, again, I don't see a, a clear role that's needed to be filled that we would need to pencil him in for. Um, Mithers is willing to work with men after they're discovered, so we have that already. Um, you know, building up to the whole uh, the whole um, union of Mithros thing, which of course doesn't pan out or fails to pan out in a fairly spectacular way. Um, he can be the one who lets everyone know the truth of the ship burning. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree with that, but uh, okay. Big picture. For me, the role that he plays in the later story is secondary to his own personal relationship with the death of his brother and the oath and with his father. He, like the posthumous relationship with his father, essentially. Um, to me, those questions trump the question of like what role could he play in the stories later on. Because as I said, I don't think there is any single uh, uh, role that he does play or could play in any story that happens later on that could not be at least as well uh, 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 filled by somebody else. Again, I'm not saying he's useless. I'm not saying we can't bring him in. Um, we totally could. If we chose to do that, we w- I'm sure we would find excellent uses for him uh, later on. He, he could play some interesting roles down the road. But those roles themselves do not seem to me to be a compelling reason to keep him. Um, several of you were talking about like him being the motivation for the, the final kinslaying. I'm not sh- convinced that he would be in the new version of the story. I'm not convinced that he would be, um, with the Amros who survives the death of his brother, um, at essentially at the hands of their crazy father. Um, to me, before I can be convinced about any of these things, um, I need to be, I need to have for me the big question answered. How does he respond? What is his relationship with the oath and with Feanor afterwards? Um, I'm okay with having him get over grief and despair. Um, I'm not categorically against him being able to move on from the death of his brother. But move on where? And to what? And to me, the thing that I can't get over is 
the emotional complexity of his relationship with the Oath of Feanor. As I think I said last time, I can only understand one of two reactions of Amros. Uh, only, only, there are only two, psych- uh, two psychological reactions to the death of his twin under the circumstances in which we're describing it happen that make sense to me. One is to reject his father in the oath, to blame his father and to blame, to, for him to say of all his brothers you know, uh, that like the oath of Feanor is bad news and only disaster is going to come of it and he's not going to have any more to do with it, right? That's one reaction that makes sense to me. Um, and of course, this makes extra sense as, of course, everyone outside the family, the Feanor family, also sees this already, right? So, I mean, the, it's not exactly a news flash that the oath of Feanor is bad news uh, and a pretty bad idea and destructive not only to others but to them themselves, right? That is, of course, the nature of the oath of Feanor, and. So therefore, having Amros have his eyes opened to that fact, to have uh, you know his his desire to follow his father, to uh, to obey his father, and to uh, you know and to stick with his family, um, and to you know obey the principles you know in which his father has raised them, you know in their crazy little enclave over there in Formanos or whatever, it's it's. Uh, what has happened seems to me very much a sufficient cause for him to 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 say that's it i'm out i am i am um i will not go along with this anymore um that's um that 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 is a psychological reaction that makes sense to me the other psychological reaction that makes sense to me is for him to go absolutely 180 degrees in the opposite direction, for him to rationalize his brother's death, to reconcile himself to his brother's death by saying, the oath is all. The oath is the most important thing. My twin broke the oath and brought his death on himself. He deserved to die, right? Um, To cope with his feelings of anger uh, against his father by basically blaming his brother for his own death. Right and and therefore becoming the most fanatical of all of the remaining six brothers in the adherence to the oath. That also makes sense to me. Um, what doesn't make sense to me is just have him continue, have him like mourn for a while, get over it, and be like, okay, but I'm just like ye old member of the of the Fanor you know party line, uh, just kind of keeping on and keeping the oath. Um, uh, I. Um, my rationale for wanting to kill him off is to point to the hopelessness of the oath, right? That what Amros sees sooner than all the rest of them, right, is basically what Maglor is trying to convince Mithros of at the very end when they go to take the Silmarils from the victorious camp of the, uh, of the armies of the West, Right, um, that uh, the one way or another, whether they fulfill their oath or don't fulfill their oath, right? You know, the 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 the, the darkness is going to be their their doom. So and so they will do less harm in the breaking of the oath, right? Um, I, I think. Um, yeah. So Marie, that he's bound by the oath is it, exactly like the tra- you know that. Of the two stories, of the two psychological reactions that I was describing, right, either he rebels, desires to rebel against the oath, or 
you know, talks himself around essentially to being a fanatical uh, proponent of the oath. In either case, he's bound by the oath still here. He took it. He took the oath, right? So in that first case, that's what led me to, to the suicide option, right? Because he wants to rebel against it. He wants to distance himself from it, but he can't escape it. He's bound by it, right? And the, the sort of his awareness of the hopelessness of the situation. Um, uh, you know, so I'm okay if we want to um, make him live with that. Right, live with hatred of the oath, but being bound to the oath. Um, and again, I think of that phrase um, about how with with loathing, right, uh, Mithros and Maglor go to fulfill the oath and reclaim the Silmarils at the end. Right, um, uh, they 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 really don't want to. Um, uh, they really don't want to uh, to do it, but they they have to, they they you know they feel that they, the the oath drives them. They have to right. Um, if Amrost ever does anything to fulfill the oath, right, to try to regain the Silmarils, he should be doing it with I, I would say with like way more loathing the, even than Mithros and Maglor. I mean, he should be the king of loathing uh, as far as the fulfillment of the oath is concerned. Um, and Marie, yes, you're right. Suicide would bring on the eternal darkness consequence. But that's the point, is that, again, as Maglor perceives at the end, anything they do is going to bring on the eternal darkness consequence. They doomed themselves to the eternal darkness when they swore the oath. Um, The only question is, how many people are going to bring down with them on the way, right? Um, So this is why I don't, I can't see how, I can't reconcile how, he is going to be the mover of the third kinslaying. Why? Why would this Emros, with this relationship with the oath, uh, again, unless he becomes like Plan B, unless he becomes the fanatical, mindless, I just want to kill any everything, and and you know, like this sort of nihilistic killer who uh, is, um, you know, just like brainlessly dedicated to the oath uh, because he doesn't want to confront his own grief and his own guilt. Um, I get, that could work. It's to me not as interesting as the other story, but that could work. That Amros would I could see being the one to be like, "Yeah, let's go and kill the refugees at the you know and at the at the havens." Um, but the first Amros, Plan A Amros, at least my own personal Plan A Amros, the one who really, really wishes that he could just rebel and be done with the whole thing, who 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 wants to fulfill the oath less than any other of the sons of Fan or passionately wishes he could not fulfill the oath, but is driven to do so, he's not going to be the moving force behind the kinslaying? No way! How could he be? It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, sure, three more of his brothers died in Doriath, um, but yeah, so what? That's not the same thing! I mean, it's so seriously, like, because... So, he hates the oath. Right, hates the oath and hates the fulfilling of it. So he follows his brother. He goes with his brothers into Doriath to attack Doriath because he feels that he has to. Does he want to do that? No, he doesn't want to do that. And he should be the one all the way leading up to that, being like, "Okay, everybody, if we this sucks. If we do this, it's going to be awful. We're going to be doing a horrible thing. We're going to be killing innocent people, and we're going to be heaping guilt upon guilt uh, on ourselves. But we've got to fulfill the oath. So let's go. Let's 
let's go do this. And in as much as his other brothers, like Kelegorm and Kurofin and Karanthir, are gung-ho about fulfilling the oath, and they're like, hey, we don't care if we kill the people. How is their deaths, the death of his brothers who are most who are the worst of his brothers, the most pro-Oath brothers, the ones that he would have to have been distancing himself and alienating himself from most throughout the course of their lives between the death of Amrod and that point. How is their deaths in Doriath going to change him suddenly into being like, now I see the Oath is a great idea, and now I totally want to go and, and destroy the refugees in Balar. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, so, uh, uh yeah, yeah, no, Hakan, I agree. I think his brothers are going to hate him. I mean, I think Karanthir uh, and Kelegorm are not going to have any, or, or Kurvin, none of the three of them are going to have any patience with him at all. Um, uh, why would they be? I mean, he's going to be, he's going to be constantly, he's going to be like their own personal Mandos, right? Uh, 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 constantly condemning them um, and, uh, you know, and sort of, you know, speaking in bitterness against himself and against them, right? I mean, it's, um, I I can't see how he wouldn't be that way again unless we go the opposite the opposite extreme and put him at the forefront of the oath fulfilling brothers and make him you know more bloody handed and bloody minded even than Karanthir uh, and Kelegorm which I to me we already have plenty of bloody handed and bloody minded Feanorians we don't need another one um, so uh, um. Yeah. Um Yeah. Uh No. Okay, so Nick is asking uh so Nick is alluding to there have been several times when I have um uh when I have said something in the podcast about like how oh, I don't think that like this would look good visually at all. We can't do that. Uh, and I've had an appeal on Twitter uh, from some of the visual artists to say, hey, you know, give us a shot before you condemn it, right? Um, uh, and and I, you know, and, and I, I was properly rebuked by that. Absolutely true. I shouldn't say it's impossible to depict this in a way that's going to look cool before I give the visual artists a crack at making it look cool. That's their job, right? So... I right, we that. should just give them... Just enough rope to hang themselves. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Nick is asking. You, you, know, you, guys, you guys do know that the, the standard exec way here is we, we it's a foregone conclusion. We've already made up our minds. Yeah. We'll just yeah. whatever it is you do, we'll criticize and then say, see, we were right all along. <laughs> that's the fun thing about being in this job, right? That's what I was told. That's, yeah. that's, that's how I was convinced to take this job in the first place. Yes. Um, but um, um, anyway. Uh, so Nick is asking, you know, just as I'm, uh, I was asked to trust the visual artists, could I trust the uh, the script team to make a nuanced Amros who doesn't need to be one extreme or another? No, no, uh-uh. uh, because <laughs> there's a difference. There's a difference between saying. Uh, how this one element is going to be depicted in this scene and whether or not it's going to look dorky um, and to give the artist an opportunity to make that not look dorky. The equivalent, Nick, would be if I say... I think that this scene, like this scene between these two people, is likely to sound really hokey. And if you were to ask, give us a chance to write some really good dialogue that would not be hokey before you just say this scene will inevitably be hokey. That would be the parallel, right? When we're, I'd p- plot arc, though, 
that's squarely uh, uh, our job, and I want to be, and uh, and and that's one of the primary things I'm interested in thinking about. So no, I'm not willing to just say I. I before I'm going to let Amroth survive, I need I need to be convinced uh, that his story is going to be consistent and make sense. Um, and I cannot see I cannot see a an Amros who is I've I have not yet. Oh, let me say this another way. I have not yet heard any argument that convinces me that Amros should lead the kinslaying, the third kinslaying. Um, and so this is why, again, several of you were pointing to that, like Amros needs to be one of the, the reason we can't kill him is that we need him to be one of the, the moving forces behind the third kinslaying. And my counter argument to that is even if we do leave him alive, he can't do that. Not the this, not, not Amros 2.0, not Amros whose brother was killed in the, uh, in the burning of the ships that I can't reconcile that. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I agree, Brianna. I don't want to just lightly add a suicide because I agree. That's not something that I just want to toss out there. Um, and I apologize if it seems like I am. The reason I was thinking about suicide, not personally, let me take that back. The reason I was thinking about Amros committing suicide is to point to the despair, like the, the, the hopelessness, that sense of that the oath is something they cannot escape, even if they want to, is something that I think the suicide of Emros could establish early on, right? Um, and that, like, Mithros and Maglor in that final conversation before they raid the camp of the Army of the West uh, can be recalling, right? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so Mike has asked, uh, anyway, so I actually do think that there would be in that way, some real utility to his death if he were to die here. And by the way, and by suicide, I don't necessarily mean he has to throw himself off a cliff or something like that. Um, he could sort of throw his life away in battle or something, just like be especially reckless in his battle against Morgoth. I would be, it would make sense, you know, for him to kind of channel his anger against his father into rage against Morgoth and, and, but be reckless in battle and die in one of the, uh, upcoming skirmishes. Like I would be fine with that kind of thing, but, um, but okay. So, but Mike has asks a great follow-up question to the kinslaying thing. Um, uh, who does, if he doesn't lead the third kinslaying, who does? Especially if he's not there, right? If I get my way, which looks decreasingly likely, uh, that Amros dies early, and then the three, you know, uh, the three bad guys, you know, Karanthir, Kurufin, and uh, uh, and Kelegorm, all die in Doriath, who then leads the third kinslaying? And my answer would be Mithros. Again, that's like when we begin to see the oath closing in on them, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's the third kinslaying is like possibly the greatest tragedy of all of the kinslayings, right? Um, it's it's Remember how when we were doing Kinslaying number one at the beginning of the season, one of the things that we were trying to do, which I thought was really good, and I'm really glad that we did it the way that we did, um, we were trying to set up the Kinslaying so that it could be kind of understandable from both sides, right? Not that uh, Feanor's actions are justified, but we tried to create that um, 
so that it made a kind of sense from both sides and so that people on both sides could both feel that they were in the right, you know? Um, and I like how we did that. And I think that that really works. And I think that a similar kind of thing, not exactly the same thing, but a similar kind of thing uh, can happen in the second Kinslaying with the attack on Doriath, where both sides can sort of feel justified, feel like the other side are the bad guys, right? The third Kinslaying, not possible. There is no sense in which the refugees of Gondolin and Doriath who are living at the havens uh, uh, down in the Bay of Balar are the bad guys. Like they're t- Apart from the fact that they won't give up the Silmaril when it's asked, right? That's literally the only justification for attacking them and slaughtering them. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, now, Marie, I agree that Mithros leads the fourth kinslaying, right? That is the attack on the camp, uh, the, on the victorious camp and the final theft of the Silmarils. Um, so it might, I, I, and so I acknowledge the, 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 the sense that that might feel redundant. Um, but I think that we can, we can sort of frame that differently. First of all, um, the discussion that they have beforehand, um, what they're doing is practically suicide, right? That's not the case. The whole tone and spirit of it is different the last time um, than in the attack on the camp. Even just the fact that it's after the War of Wrath, right? The War of Wrath is done. Um, evil has been defeated. Uh, Morgoth no longer has the gems, right? The whole thing is um, the whole thing is 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 the whole situation is different. Um, also, remember another thing, Marie. Another thing I would really want to put in there: the role of Elrond and Elros, right? The relationship with Elrond and Elros. Um, personally, I would want to make Elrond and Elros a part of that conversation. Have them at least be witness to the conversation. Have them have some input, right? I want Mithros to look Elrond in the face and tell him what he's going to do. I want Mithros to say goodbye. Uh, uh, and to me, that dynamic, right? So that you have, you show that Mithros isn't just a broken record, right? But like why obviously he has repented. His relationship with Elrond and Elros is like a manifestation of the way that he has continued to grow and change since the third kinsling. And yet, he's going to look Elrond and Elros in the face and say, bye, I'm off to kill some more elves to try to get the Silmarils back. Um, you know, under the circumstances, you know, in the, in the uh, you know, under the personal care of, like, Aeonwe and stuff, that's where I'm headed. Um, it's it's I, that's going to feel different. It's not going to feel the same. Uh, you know, he's not leading an army. It's, it's so I, I'm I'm confident that when we get there, that's going to feel different. What do you think about that? The redundancy question there, Dave. Also, several people have proposed keeping someone else alive. Right. I mean, there's there's no shortage of sons of Fanor. So um, yeah, we can. And there's yeah. There's at least. A, there's at least a couple instances where multiple of them get uh, get killed off. Yeah. Why? You know. Why we we can we can kind of we can kind of spread them around a little bit. <laughs> it, yeah, it wouldn't be hard to keep like Caranthir or even Kelagorm alive, um, or even Kurofin, I guess. And we could keep one of the three alive. Um, I mean, I, I could imagine sort of Caranthir being the one staying alive, and him being like, "We gotta go kill them," and have Mithros and Magor be like. Dang it, Carnthier! <laughs> like, why do you have to go there? Um, There's no end to this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or just, or just um, put one of them in charge of leading the third kinslaying instead yeah. of Mithros. So, I don't, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I, I'm very ambivalent about this. I, I don't really 
feel strongly about either side. I, I don't feel strongly that he should die earlier, but I also don't really see any, I'm not particularly convinced by any of the arguments that he shouldn't. <laughs> so I'm sort of like, eh, what are, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> right, right. So one, one point that Hakan keeps bringing up um, that I, I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on was like this twin aspect. Is there something interesting to be done with Twins. The twin component, yeah. Yeah. Um, Which gets addressed a little bit with, as he points out, with Eladon and Elro here. And, yeah. And he's yeah. kind of pointing to this idea that, that, you know, that there's sort of, um, you know, like one, one, one thing to do from the twin angle is is have him feel an obligation to his dead twin to like mm-hmm. sort of take up his, you mm-hmm. know, take up his point of view or his mission or whatever. Right. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, in a, we do have Eladon and Elro here, but in a sense, the even closer parallel, uh, well, parallel now that we're killing off Amrod, um, would be Elrond and Elros, right? Now, Elros is, you know, what happens to Elros is obviously very different from what happens to Amrod. Um, but still, I'm thinking of, like, the surviving twin situation, right? Uh, and not just the surviving twin situation, the immortal surviving twin situation, right? Yeah. What it is like to be an immortal and go on without your twin, right? Um, now, again, the grief of Elrond and, and his relationship with what happened to his brother, obviously totally different from Amrod and Amros, but yet that's a parallel that we can kind of explore, right? To have the bereaved twin uh, and how do they how do they deal with it and how does it affect them? So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, Marie, exactly. The twin alone... Uh, and and again, like to me, it's made more poignant by like twin alone forever, right? Not just like twin who's going to outlive his twin by a few decades, right? Twin who's going to outlive his twin by millennia um, and has to really reconcile himself to a new world in which his twin, you know, he's not connected with his twin or at least won't be for, for thousands of years. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, because this is another thing, it, it, it kind of gets onto another really big question, um, like the question that we, um, uh, um, like the real, qu- the, 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 the big question that we talked about in the kinslaying with how do elves grieve over dead relatives, right? Uh, you know, if they're immortal and they know that their dead relatives have just moved down the street to the halls of Mandos, um, you know, how, do, how do they cope with, with, with bereavement sort of parallel to that or, or, or like a corollary to that question is what does moving on look like to an elf? Right. Um, because they're different from humans, right? Um, Remember the elvish tendency to want to keep everything the way that it is, right? To want to hold on to the things of the past and not just remember, not just in memory, right? To, but to, to continue living there. Although they live for a really long time, they don't change as much as humans do. Um, and that's, I think, an, an interesting thing for us to think about. It's tempting for us to look at Amros and Amros's story as if he were human, Right. Um, you know, many people have dealt with bereavement, right? And if you just kind of project forward how a human being copes with bereavement and, you know, put, push that through 
project, project that forward through centuries, right? It'd be like, well, I'm sure he will have found peace and moved on, you know, within a few hundred years at least, even if he's a slow coper, right? Um, well, yeah, if he were human, he would, but he's not human. Uh, you know, do elves move on in the same way? I'm not really sure that they do. So, like, for instance, um, to, to give another another sort of example, um, I ignore, right? Uh, the next next season is going to feature, uh, in part, the romantic relationship between Ignor and Andreth, the uh, Ignor, son of Finarfin, and Andreth, the human wise woman. Um, the story, which is not told but alluded to uh, in the Athrabeth uh, of Finrod and Andreth in Morgoth's Ring, one of Tolkien's late writings. Um, so this is a not unrequited but unconsummated love between Ignor and Andreth, the only male elf human female relationship uh, there is that we're told about in Tolkien's world, um, unless there's another one that I'm not remembering, but I think it's unique. Um, he um, Ignore. Now, Ignore is going to actually predecease Andreth, right? But if that situation were different, right? Um, if Ignore lived, which he won't, but if he does, right? If he did, would he ever move on and marry somebody else? I don't think he does. I don't think he ever would. I think he would continue loving Andreth for the rest of his, like for what, however many millennia he went on to live. Um, I don't believe that Ignor would ever just like move on and, and learn to love somebody else eventually. Um, again, like widows and widowers do that. Human widows and widowers do that. It's part of life. It happens and it's no bad thing, right? But would an elf do that? I'm not convinced that they would. Um, so, uh, this is my way. Of, this is my my last obvious con- counterexample being Finway. <laughs> well, yes. Why the marriage of Finway is a problem and has always been a problem. Yep. Yep. No, exactly. Hence the controversy. So, yeah, that one seems like a seems like an outlier. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, I don't know that so. we don't really we don't really have a good explanation for that, right? But it's I, I don't I I'm not sure it's relevant, right? Like like the the way that story happens, I don't well I don't know I was gonna I was gonna make the argument that I don't get a sort of this is Finway dealing with his grief constructively and moving on. One could argue that um, that 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 uh, marrying again for him was actually um, a case of him failing to deal failing with this. Failing to grief move on, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, quite, um, uh, quite, quite possibly, quite likely. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, so Corey, are you are you persuaded at all that maybe we should keep Amros alive so we can do something fun with? I will say uh, this. I will say this. Uh, I won't go so far as to say that I am convinced that we should keep him alive. But I am willing to submit to the uh, popular voice and keep him alive with the under like I've, so what what I've been doing here has been like cautions and provisos, right? Um, we can keep him along, 
but only if we're thinking if if we you know so like I I I'm I'm not okay with him just like move you know we need to be thinking about what it's going to look like and we need to be consistent with that. Um, I want Plan A, Emros if he lives. I want the angry, uncomfortable sort of self-loathing. Uh, uh, like trapped, like feeling trapped by the oath and loathing himself in, in loathing every action he has to perform in order to fulfill the oath. Um, um, and uh, yeah, no, Hakan, that was a plan B was the, he becomes like the most bloody minded proponent of the oath. Um, uh, that's the one I don't want. I want, um, um, I want to, I want to make sure that in everything we have Amros do, uh, we are still remembering the grief, his grief for his brother, his uh, his anger at his father, his resentment of the oath, uh, and the subsequent self-loathing for the continuing to abide by in his sense. He should be the voice of, if his suicide does not convey the message, he needs to be verbally reminding us of the message that they are trapped. Um, so that's... Uh, if we can go on and develop Amros along these lines, I'm not against having him be uh, play a role and, and continue. We can we can we can try out having him having him live for a while. We'll we'll let him live for now. Uh, may still want to kill him off later on. I'm still not even he sure a, that I want to get him to the he end. Received, uh, he has received a temporary reprieve. <laughs> a temporary reprieve for Amros. I can't uh, promise any more. Stay of that. execution. <laughs> stay of execution. Exactly. Exactly, Corey. Do you do you feel strongly that if he's going to die, it needs to happen, you know, pretty quickly after the death of Amrod? Or I don't know. I mean, I, again, I don't think it has to be. Um, yeah, Marie, uh, making Amros the conscience of the Feanorians. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, uh, I can, I can, I can, I can see him. Uh, uh, I can see him doing that. Um, and uh, Hakan, absolutely, he can be, before the death of his brother, he can be all for the oath. Um, remember, we were talking about, like, an exchange between him and his brother, you know, if, uh, the last exchange between him and his brother. Um, and I would want him in that final exchange to be all about the oath, you know, to be urging Amrod that, like, we must follow the oath. We must, um, and and uh, his regret for that being part of what informs his, his later changes. So, um, so yeah, so, okay. If he's not going to die here, when should he die? I'm not sure I want him to die at the Havens. Maybe, maybe, maybe he could stand aside at the Havens and be killed. Like let himself get killed. Um, I, I could be, I could be quick because remember we're told that happens, right? We're told that many of the Feanorians stood aside or even turned and fought on the side of the, uh, of the refugees, right? Um, if Amros is the leader of that particular party, right? If Amros is the one who turns against his brothers and in the end decides he would rather break the oath and doom himself to the eternal darkness than participate in the slaughter of the refugees, uh, by the, by the havens and then is in the end killed by one of his own people or maybe Karanthir if we let him survive or whatever. Um, 
that's okay. Or, 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 yeah, or Moriori just lets himself be killed or sacrifices himself in order to save a bunch of the refugees, you know, does some kind of desperate rear guard, like I'm going to get myself killed in order to, in order to give everybody else time to escape kind of deal. Um, maybe he sacrifices himself and it's the death of Amros that enables uh, Elwing to make it, you know, to the cliff and jump into the sea or something like that. Um, this would that that would be a suitable fate for Amros. I, I would be I would be I would be okay uh, with that. So that that would give me a reason to want to keep him alive. But I'm telling you, I got to warn you. I think Amros is going to be inconvenient. Honestly, I really do. I think uh, I think he's going to be inconvenient. Maybe he'll work out, but uh, uh, but I think there are going to be times when he's going to be a little awkward. But um, uh, but we'll see. It's okay. Uh, but the good thing is, if he is ever awkward, uh, I can remind you guys that it's your own fault. So that's good, because you wanted to keep him alive. Excellent. Okay. So, David, are, are you ready to move on from the the very difficult Amros question? If we must. <laughs> Concerning Amros. That Thanks. really should be the title of like the entire episode at this point. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. Because we've yep. got a couple other things of mild importance to discuss. The de- like the death of Feanor, for instance. Yeah. Okay. So one of the really tricky things that I was asking about in my questions uh, for this time, last time, is that final vision that Feanor gets. So as Feanor is, he's mortally wounded, and we are, uh, the, the, you know, our outline makers have said they want to, like, sort of stretch out the death scene of Feanor into this episode, which is fine. I'd still kind of rather kill off Feanor at the end of an episode, um, but it's cool. Like, if we want to put him in this episode, it's, that's fine. Um, but, um, but he has this vision. Right. Uh, this this he is visited with foreknowledge as he is facing death and knows that the Noldor are never going to be able to win. Like they will not be able to overcome Morgoth. And his response to that is to double down on the oath. Right. So how do we handle the vision is this is a, a classic example of how do we handle this in a visual medium? Um yeah, um, this is a, this is kind of a dilemma, right? Cause, yeah. Um, because 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 the text itself is sort of interesting, like interestingly vague about yes. like I, I kind of see I kind of see two options. Um, um, the one is the one is to emphasize the foreknowledge of death component, yep. and to give him like an actual proper vision proper of vision, the future. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the other one is to just is to is to sort of maybe follow the text a little bit more literally or like maybe a more literal reading of the text, which is to have him just kind of to, to visually show the strength of Morgoth and then just to have him, you know, just, just sort of just kind of communicate that he just knows that they can't win. Yeah. I, I'm not going to lie. I'm leaning toward the, the latter right now. I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm a big fan of uh, trying to show visions of the future. Maybe, maybe visions of, Visions that don't show, like you know, oh, here's an here's a here's here's a scene from the Nirnaeth Arnoidiad, and here's right. them losing or whatever. But maybe just visions of like sort of what the might of Morgoth will is and will continue to be through the future. But I, I mean, I really I don't I'm I think I'm against. 
trying to actually show glimpses of future scenes or whatever. It would be easy enough to convey merely his knowledge, right? His conviction in dialogue, right? For him to say, especially if like, so, you know, we decided that Kurofin is his favorite son, right? So he would, maybe he confines it to Kurofin. Um, I don't think he would declare it to everybody, right? I don't think, you know, we want a scene where he's like making an announcement to the entire army or even to all of his sons. Like, so everybody, I, uh, I foresee that we cannot win, right? I, 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 would, uh, I would like that to be just sort of whispered to Kurofin alone. And, and it would, that would seem to be logically, uh, logically connected to... Um, or th- that would seem to lead logically to sort of a, a final injunction to Kurofin, right? Uh, like the saying... I have the conviction that we cannot, we, the Noldor cannot actually overcome Morgoth, but <laughs> I want you to promise that you're not going to give up, right? That you're not going to stop trying. Uh, in fact, bring your brothers together and let's uh, let's re let's re swear the oath. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that would seem. To, I mean, I agree, Dave. That's really the simplest solution to the issue. Um, I think also the least corny, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't deny that I am tempted by the vision shots, right? Um, I mean, that... The, the challenge of crafting the vision shots, right? To give the, I mean, I love some of the suggestions, you know, like the banner of the high King being trodden into the, into the, into the blood and mud at the, uh, you know, at the new knife or nobody at, you know, not knowing the context of it, but just seeing the banner of the high King trodden into the, into the blood. Um, I like that as a, as a suggestion. There are, there are certainly other moments, you know, that could be, um, I mean, it does something like that. The opportunity. So, so I guess the reason I prefer something vaguer is I kind of like the idea that he doesn't have the certainty of specifics. Like, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen, but rather it's it's more of a general hopelessness. Like, I, mm-hmm. I think hopelessness is emphasized by sort of like by by just kind of a like a vague, uneasy feeling, like that this is just not going to happen. You know, like that seem that to me seems more more hopeless um, and more ominous. Right. Whereas like giving him very specific, like, you know, knowledge of exactly what's going to happen that, you know, like, like, you know, that doesn't really, you don't become hopeless. Then you have dead certainty that this won't work. Right. However, there would be something horribly ironic if he sees scenes of his scenes that strongly hint that his, uh, all of his sons are going to die. And then he just sends them on into it anyway, right? Yeah. Um, well, exactly. And that's, um, uh, I mean, Nick, I absolutely see, in fact, I embrace the irony of Kurofin being the biggest backer of the oath after this, right? Um, because, of course, that irony is a projection of Feanor's own viewpoint, right? 
I mean, it's it's Feanor who is a seeing the helplessness of their situation and b doubling down on on his son's going to pursue the hope the situation which he just received the conviction was hopeless. Like that that irony is there in Feanor's own perspective. So in what I'm talking about doing is basically passing that along to Kurafin, you know, to make Kurafin, and, and, you know, Kurafin can have an angle on it, right? You know, Kurafin can, uh, we can think of a way for Kurafin to, like, relate himself to that without just being in despair, right? And, and considering it a very protracted form of suicide to continue his father's, um, his father's, you know, uh, vendetta. Um, you know, Maybe what this leads Kurafin to do. So what if, um, what if, because Kurafin's real clever, right? What if his father utters something which is conceived of, um, which which is conceived as a prophecy, right? Which Kurafin hears as a prophecy, right? Um, the no, no power of the Noldor will overthrow Morgoth, right? And what if Kurafin tries to read that in a no living man may hinder me kind of prophecy, right? You know, Gorfindel prophecies that no living man will take down the Witch King. This doesn't mean, of course, that the Witch King will never get taken down. So what if Kurufin is already thinking that direction, right? What if Kurufin, um, uh, his father says the Noldor will never overcome Morgoth, and he's like, okay, the, Mor- the Noldor will never overcome Morgoth. This doesn't mean we don't try. This doesn't mean we despair. This just means we've got to get clever about it. Right. Exactly, Marie. And this is what leads him to suddenly be keen on the Sindar and the Adain. This is why he takes over uh, uh, Nargothrond. Right. Um, uh, and and is is trying to manipulate things. And this is like so. Remember, Kelgorm sees Luthien and he's like, whoa, she's really hot. Like, I really want her. And Kurofin can see Luthien and be like, ah, the plan, right? By, uh, by allying my, uh, my brother Kelgorm with Luthien, uh, we can then have... Dor- so now it won't just be the, you know, this is our way out of the prophecy or what. See, I, I, this is how I imagine Kurofin thinking, right? His response to this would be, this just means I have to scheme harder, Right, in order to find the loophole that will enable us to win, um, because again, Feanor himself, the conviction of Morgoth's like impenetrable strength, does not lead him to give up. Hopeless, yes, but not giving up, right? Um, and so, but is it a? Yeah. Here's the question I have: like the way I always interpret it, the way I interpret this scene and Feanor's behavior in general was was not out of a, like, was not sort of a, you know, well, he's just the eternal optimist. He sees right. it's hopeless, and he's just, <laughs> look, we just got to be smarter, and better, blah, blah, blah. No, it's like sheer spite, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, he, he determines that he want, he would rather march into death than And, and, than, and march than his sons into death than rolling. Yeah, and march yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I don't like the angle of, like, I don't like the angle of, like, he sits his sons down and says, all right, look, I had a vision. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, I think we're all no, going to lose, I, I, so you guys got to find some workarounds. Exactly. No, I'm thinking that's Kurofin's angle, essentially. Um, right, okay. So that Kurofin it, doesn't so have to embrace the, the, the whole, like, you but know, I, I, death Even is then, I think I still prefer his sons picking up the general ethos of, like, you know, kind of um, 
stupid pigheadishness of like, well, right. we're going to do this. Doesn't matter what the con- you know sort of consequences be damned. Like, right. I mean, I guess it. I guess there is sort of a you know throughout the course of the story, there are these moments where they do seem to actually legitimate like. At least their behavior indicates that they think like, you know, if we can just form these alliances and do this and that and the other, we can win. But even then, like, you never really get the feeling that they actually really think like, look, I think we have the numbers to storm the, you know, like, I think we can take them this time. There mm-hmm. seems to be just sort of an in- inexorable, we have to do this because we said we would. But, you know, like, I never, in reading it, at least, you know, and this is my interpretation, in reading it, I never find myself thinking like, they really think they got him this time. Um, <laughs> well, that with with the union of Mithros, I think that Mithros really does talk himself into like that they can win, right? I mean, the whole the, sure. the way that that begins right after Baron and Luthien with like, "Hey, Morgoth is not unassailable. We can do this, people." Like, I think that there's genuine optimism on 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 Mithros, which is what makes it so tragic, of course. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. But it, so, are you imagining? So, so um, let's roll with the idea that. Feanor gets kind of specific visions, and I, I really, I'm, I, I'm, I, I will say, I, I do, I am attracted to the idea that he sees um, visions that strongly hint that hinted his. So, so to address one question that folks have, uh, one idea that people propose, people propose showing like, you know, actual visions of how things work out in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm definitely against that. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I think the subtlety there is too much. I think if we show the end of the story and like, oh, there'll be a Silmarillion, Silmarillion in the sky, and and um, um, you know, and and Aaron, they'll come and save everyone. But Feanor will look at that and think, oh, that's terrible. What's right. going? That's horrible. Right. Someone, no, the viewers will look and say, like, the viewers won't understand. They'll be like, he just saw a world in which things worked out, and he's unhappy. No. He needs to see the only things he should get to see should be the things that are like him losing his son's dying, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, and the I, payoff would, is too far away. I mean, I'm, I'm tempted, Dave, thinking yeah. along those same lines to do like, you know, like Denethor's vision of the ships with black sails. Right. So like, yes. the thing that he interprets as a disaster, but of course, turns out not to be. So like, I would yes, be exactly. tempted to try to do a similar kind of thing with Fanor here for him to see a vision, which is actually we will come to know in retrospect, a sign of hope, but which he doesn't understand as a sign of hope. Right. And yeah, yeah. Despair. I'd be tempted to do that. But the payoff is so long. I mean, it's going to yeah. take 10 years before we get to the end of, you know, till we get to ARN. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That's true. you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that it's yeah, worth it at that point. Also, but I also think like you know, um, if we want want to stay stay true to the spirit of the text, it needs his vision should not be of the his vision should be of the defeat of the Noldor, not of sort of yes. the not of the kind of yeah the, the not of the ultimate victory of the West, which sort of by by you know by virtue of the specific oath he made happens to be the defeat of Feanor, you know, yes. in a roundabout way. No, no, it should be like focus specifically on scenes of despair and horrible things happening to like his kin in particular. Yeah. However, I do, I do like the, de- the, the Denethor connection. Can we have him looking in a, um, in a Palantir for this? <laughs> no, we can't. We, we've got, we have a strict, no Palantir policy, uh, here in the first stage. Yeah, no, we can't. Um, I don't mind the idea of him seeing, uh, Nick was uh, was suggesting we go sort of a little bit more abstract rather than like rather than a specific vision of Arendo or something like that. I would just like to have him, you know, see a Silmaril 
as if it were in the sky and have him reaching up towards it, you know, before his death. Um, the whole idea of the Silmaril up, you know, just so we so we have the visual image of it. But the the whole point to Feanor is that it's out of his reach, right? And he can't he can't get it. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, now Nick is asking Dave if we can tell the viewers that everything is going to be terrible without telling them don't bother watching this because it's going to be horrible. Uh, My response to that is people keep watching Game of Thrones <laughs> they receive, and they receive absolutely zero assurance yes. that, that there will be a happy ending. In fact, to the extent they've received any information whatsoever about how that story will end, um, Martin repeatedly has said it's not going to be a happy ending. It's going to yep. be bittersweet. Yeah. And and the evidence we have thus far is, um, if you become invested in anyone, they will die eventually. So, yeah. so I don't buy it. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. People don't need hope to go on. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but of course, the other thing to keep in mind is that this isn't even the end of an episode, right? No. Um, you know. So it's not like this is going to be the final message of whether or not you go on or not. Um, uh, in this way. For that reason, having the death of Feanor near the beginning rather than the end of an episode is 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 a good thing because we're not ending on that note even. Um, but I strongly agree with you, Dave, that his visions have to be totally Feanor centric, right? That's what Feanor cares about. Um, so the fact that his own quest for vengeance is going to fail, the quest, his own quest for vengeance, and the quest that he's that he's he's bequeathing to his sons is not going to pan out. That's the what he's. I agree. He, I don't think he cares a bit about the fate of Middle Earth. Um, yeah, yeah. So I agree. Um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, but I think we should. I think that what he communicates to his sons should be. I think that what he communicates to his sons should be partial and unclear. He's dying, right? He's dying. And I don't, I don't think we need a, a hugely long, like drawn out Shakespearean death scene here. Um, he's dying. He has his vision. He's able to say a few sentences, right? Uh, which he's, whisp- you know, which maybe at the beginning he's whispering to Kurofin and then the other brothers come and hear his last uh, words, which are probably like, telling them to renew the oath. Um, maybe the last thing he hears is his, his son, you know, he makes his sons repeat the oath and he dies while they're repeating it. Um, uh, uh, if, if he actually like expires when, uh, actually we could have him expire in the middle of, uh, in the middle of, of the oath at a, at a, at a, at a dramatic moment in the middle of the oath. Couldn't we? That'd be kind of cool actually. Um, but anyhow, um, uh, that's that's fine. Does Amrod renew the oath aloud? I say no. I don't think Amros does, and it, because in like there's no point, right? It's not like he's free of it. He's already taken it, right? Um, so I, I could imagine like you know Caranthir or somebody or Kelagorm saying like Amros, why didn't you take the oath again? And him being like you know whatever. There's no point. I already took the bloody oath once. I'm, you know, there's no need to say it again. Um, uh, no, no, Nick, all the brothers say it with Feanor. Like his, his seven sons leap forward and take the oath with their father in Tyrion at the beginning. So they've all taken it. Um, 
Uh, they've all taken it. Yeah, Tony, I was also thinking of the moment when he says everlasting darkness is when uh, is when he dies and his body collapses. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, wait, did we decide that they didn't speak it before? Oh, yeah, well, see, okay, when we discussed Tyrion and he said that, yeah, well, we didn't have this whole Amrod Amros situation. Because if the, if the oath is not yet binding on them, then that totally changes the whole situation with Amrod's death. Um, that only really makes sense if they're already bound by the oath. So I think we have to, we have to make them, if we're going to do that stuff, um, the, the death of Amrod really changes that for me. I think they need to, they, I think they need to take it as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, we thought it would be weird for them to already know the words. Yeah, well, they could repeat it after him, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, but, yeah. That made sense at the time. I can vaguely remember what I was thinking at the time when we said that. But, yeah, in the in the post, um, in the post Amrod and Amros world, I think we need to have them already uh, be uh, be under it. Yeah. Does Fanor name an heir? No, I think he doesn't. Um, uh, and but you know, Mithros sort of takes charge, and Kurufin lets him because Kurufin is going to do that, you know, and he's going to. Um, but he, you know, he's just going to scheme behind the scenes. You know, he's not a a take power kind of guy. He's a he's a he's a schemer, not a uh, not a not a dictator. So he's not going to jump up and be an open rival to his brother. Um, he's going to question and undermine and try to manipulate the things that his brothers do. But yeah, I think he's going. Uh, Mithros is going to take command. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Making of the sun and moon. Plenty of time. Okay, so... We're actually we're actually really moving in a good clip today. Absolutely. Yeah, this is efficiency compared to normal. Um, okay, so my question was about how we handle the sun and moon. You know, we've got the whole the flower and the fruit and, you know, the, 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 the flower of Telperion and the final fruit of, uh, of Laurelin. And... Um, them being made into the into the celestial bodies, <clears throat> um, so the the general sentiment uh, was that we don't we do want to preserve the last flower and last fruit, but we don't want to make attempt to make the scale realistic. I agree that you know as like the light of them grows, uh, you know we don't have to actually show a, a, a sphere that is you know growing to the size of the sun. Um, so yeah, I agree with having the flower and the fr- fruit be fairly large, uh, but the thing that happens is when you know when they are sort of invested with all of the final light and power of the uh, of the two trees, and especially when they're blessed by um, when they're blessed by Varda. Varda's role, um, you know, what is Varda's role? It's tricky because of course Varda's role is a hard one uh, to put your finger on visually, which is she hallows them, right? I mean, that's what she does. She goes around and hallows things. She hallows the Silmarils. She hallows the sun and moon. Um, but I think that it's when Varda blesses them is when their light is kind of multiplied. Um, and that's when, that should be sort of the final transition of them to celestial bodies, right? Varda kind of sets them off into the sky. Um, 
would be my vote for that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Tony wants to voice his displeasure at the late sun and moon creation altogether. I, you know, you have an ally in that, Tony. Tony yeah. I suppose he's going to complain about the flat earth now, too. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, you, you you have an ally in that, Tony, in, 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 in the late Tolkien, who also voiced his displeasure at the late sun and moon creation altogether. So, yep. Um, I don't fully disagree with him, though I do disagree with his rationale, but whatever. Um, uh Okay, so I agree with these other things. Have Aule make the vessels. Um, are we going to have literal vessels? Like chariots? Are we going to make a thing for the... Cause, so Aryan and Tilian are chosen to pilot the vessels. Do we actually have to make like a, a mode of transport that we place the flower and the fruit in that we have Aryan and Tilian drive away in? Right? I mean, is that... Do we need to... I'm not sure we need to make it quite so mechanical as that. I'm I'm thinking maybe what we do is we have the flower and the fruit, and what Aule does is make a... make a thing, right? Make a... like a casing, almost like a... like a... like a... I'm thinking almost like a crystal casing, right, for them. Something which indicates, like, sort of preservation, because that's one of the points of it, right? Is to preserve the final fruit and the final flower. Um, so it can be, it doesn't have to be a vehicle that Aryan and Tilian, like, hop into and, and drive, right? But rather, because um, then we have to start thinking about, like, the motive force by or whatever. But if it's just a thing that they hold and then they just go, I mean, they're spirits, right? They can do this. Like, have them, visually, we could make it as simple as, you know, you've got the flower, right? You've got the flower and the flower is encased in a, you know, Aule makes a special, you know, case for the flower, right? Whatever we want to make that look like. And that thing is handed. It could be holdable, right? That thing is then handed to Tillian. And then the, and then Varda blesses it and the light, uh, you know, grows and, and, and until we no longer see either the thing that Tillian is holding at first, nor Tillian himself, you know, both of them are sort of vanish in the glow of the silver light of the moon. And then it rises and we see the moon in the sky. Like, I don't know. I think we could get away with something as simple as that. Um, uh, what do you think about that, Dave? Yeah, Hakan, I agree. I don't think we should see the sun and moon up close after they've been made and risen and they're risen to the sky. I mean, I think that we it seems to me that what we want to convey is that the heart of the moon and the sun are the last flower and fruit of Telperion and Laurelin. We want to establish that. Um, so how the light of the trees lives on in the sun and moon. We want to establish how the uh, the the taking of that light and the um, uh, you know, sort of spreading of that light throughout the sharing of that light with the entire world um, by the placing of them in the heavens is is the strategy you know of the Valar right that they're they're doing this on purpose. Um, and we want to establish that there is a guiding spirit 
you know, that dwells within the sun and moon, right? That we have Arian and Tilian there. Um, but I think that that, you know, again, just having them vanish in a glow of light and rise up into the sky and then we never see them close again, you know, they're just, it's just the sun and, and moon from now on. And maybe they can be alluded to, right? Tilian and Arian. Um, but, uh, but we don't have to, uh, we don't, we, we don't actually ever see like the vessels of the sun and moon, uh, up close. Um, yeah, I agree, Marie. That, that's my own inclination there is the fewer details, the be- the less mechanical, the fewer details, the better. That's exactly what I was thinking too, just to kind of try to make that as simple as possible. Um, and yeah, Hakan, we do yes. establish that the sun is a super powerful attack on Morgoth and his power. And remember, we had Aryan be an unfallen Balrog, right? And I, I want to follow up that story. I, I want I want Morgoth to recognize her. I want Morgoth and Gothmog to recognize her. Um and uh, and to realize that the that you know their former uh, uh, you know their their former companion is now like one of the chief instruments of the Valar against them. Um, yeah, I I, I want to make sure that that's uh, that's explicit. Um, yep, I like that idea. Um, the the. I, the the opportunity to portray a uh, a good guy Balrog is very exciting. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, we can even have you know this moment with Arian where, with the transition, right? Like that. That so we show them in physical form, right? That Tilian and Arian step up in physical form, you know, portrayed by actual human being, actor and actress, and they take the physical vessel, right? And then as the as the glow from the the you know the the light of the vessel begins to grow and before while you can still see them they transform right into their purely spiritual forms um so i would love Arian to that 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 here's an opportunity for our visual artists right uh this glimpse of tilian in his spiritual form this glimpse of Arian in her spiritual but visible form before she you know like you know vanishes within the the glow of the sun uh, to have that one moment where we again see what we haven't seen in two years, right? An unfallen, the, the, you know, the, the glory and beauty of an unfallen Balrog revealed. And then, uh, and then, you know, the, 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 the luminance, the, the, uh, light of the sun, uh, uh, you know, o- overwhelms our vision of that. Um, exactly, Marie, because Arian still has wings because she's an unfallen Balrog. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of really uh, there, there there's a lot of really cool opportunities for visual artists, and I'm not even going to give any guidance apart from I want to see an awesome Ariel or Arian rather with wings. Um, I don't want to. Uh, I'm 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 interested to see what our visual artists come up with with that. Um, but anyway, uh, the question of the shadow demon attack. I have to admit, I want to cut that. Um, you may remember, so this Me is, a, this is just, I mean, there's only one like little passage that alludes to the fact that some shadow spirits of Morgoth attack the moon and Tilian fights them off. Um, the, that episode is like, talk about like the consistency of the overall narrative. It doesn't fit. Like, or, I mean, it, he totally never makes it fit. He never does anything with any of that. If, Morgoth has 
shadow demon spirits who can fly up into the sky. Why doesn't he use them to find Gondolin later on? You know, it's just like, I, I don't want flying spirits. We're going to have a problem if we introduce flying spirits. Um, you know, having Thurin Gwethil is, uh, is the only, she's the only air force, you know, she and the vampire bats are the only air force, uh, that Morgoth has. Uh, and, and, and we're going to be getting rid of them before we get, deep into the Gondolin uh, thing. And yes, the eagles defend Gondolin, but how are the eagles going to defend Gondolin from shadow demons who can fly up into, like, the sphere of the moon, right? Uh, I mean, I, I just... Yeah, this seems to, that seems to me a whole kettle of fish that we uh, can avoid. Um, and, I mean, it's effortless to avoid it, and I think it creates a bunch of potential problems if we do. Um, now, Nick asks the very sensible question, do, you know, do we do anything to establish Tillian as a character? I guess my answer to that, Nick, would be if we wanted to do that, it's too late. <laughs> if, we, if we want to do that, we need to think back. Where could we add Tillian in earlier on uh, to make that? I mean, it, like, for instance, what about the story of the uh, unrequited love between Tillian and Arian? Um, I think if we want to make that a thing, we need to set it up before now. Um, and I mean, maybe we can, maybe we can work that into season two or even earlier in season three, perhaps. Um, I don't know exactly where it was never really convenient. Um, we can have him be involved, Marie, with the whole, uh, with the Aurora Borealis thing that we were doing on the Helcaraxa. He can be, Tillian can be the instrument of the, of, of, of that, perhaps. Um, though kind of seems to me it should be Aryan. um thinking astronomically but um, uh, but yeah Mike we can certainly show Tillian riding with Orame I mean I, that's where we would need to do it Mike would be to, to go back and look in season one and two uh, look at the moments where Orame is involved and, and give him and, and give him a you know subordinate um, who maybe we met, you know we, we mentioned by name he can just be kind of a cameo in the early seasons but so that attentive people will recognize him when he steps forward he should be standing at the side of Orame when he steps forward they should call for volunteers and he should you know be standing next to Orame and step forward and volunteer um, so we can we can do that but I, I mean but again it seems to me that if, if we're going to introduce their characters we, we have to do it we have to go back and do it um, which may be worth doing. But at the same time, I'm not going to be broken up if we don't. I mean, we're not going to use them again. I mean, we're going to be using the sun and moon tolerably regularly throughout the rest of the show, but it's not like we're going to make Tillian and Arian a character, characters who are going to really do much after this. Um, so uh, I, I don't know that detailed development of their characters is necessary. How are we going to pay that off? Right. Um, other than just making it a recognizable pair of people who take up the sun and the moon. Um, it just doesn't seem to me crucial. Um, but absolutely. Yeah. Nick, but please do go do some digging around in season two. And, uh, if you can find some good places to bring in Arian and Tillian, I'm totally, I have no problems with that at all. All right. Retconning already. That's right. Hey, that's what it's all about, you know. That's the good thing about doing this all, all at one, you know, before any of it airs, right? Because, uh, uh, you know, we're not stuck with uh, what we already did in season one and two, so that's cool. Um, yeah. Ooh, Marielle Gage points out they could come in if we keep the ungoliant 
Sun and Moon story. Ooh, that's an interesting suggestion, Marielle. Marielle, of course, is referring to the implication story never composed. Um, uh, Well, actually, it is kind of written in one place that is in that one version of the Errantry poem. But anyway, uh, where Ungoliant is scheming to trap the sun and moon in her webs and before she's killed by Eärendil. Um, And... uh, I am certainly, I mean, we talked about wanting to keep the adventures of Eärendil <clears throat> and all the opportunities we're going to have to do cool things with the adventures of Eärendil when we get there. Um, so having him fight and kill Ungoliant, I'm, I'm open to, to putting that back in or keeping that in. Um, you know, and maybe Un- and Ungoliant could possibly threaten the sun and moon. Uh, I'm not. I'm not convinced that we'll go all the way there. But you're right that that you you have indeed, Marielle, thought of a moment when they might be relevant again later on. So, possibly, but that won't be for a long time. Even if we do do it. Okay. Uh, all right, we're doing a great job now. Okay. So we should remember that this is our last big scene with the Valar. They're going to have their council where they decide to do the the hiding of Valinor. Um, we're going to we're not going to show the hiding of Valinor yet. We'll show that in in episode thirteen. Um, but they decide to do the hiding of Valinor. Um, I agree. I think that this council, this discussion among the Valar, is going to be super important. Not only because it is the last canonical such scene, right, until Eärendil gets there. Um, so, you know, we, we, if we add any more, meanwhile, back in Valinor sequences later on, and they're going to be additions, right? They're going to be new. Um, so, so this is an important one. But of course, it's not just that it's the last, it's that they will be essentially talking about how they are going to be related to Middle Earth for the rest of the time, right? So the the whole what are the Valar doing and what is their relationship with Middle Earth question is going to be discussed explicitly. So we're going to be setting up how we want our viewers to be receiving the future history of Middle Earth as we as we carry on through and uh, how they can be understanding the Valar to be involved. Um, so I agree. I absolutely agree with the, the 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 basic premise at the top of the page here. They should articulate their strategy and reasons for leaving Middle Earth to its own devices. Otherwise, they appear disinterested and do nothing. And we don't want that. I absolutely agree. Um, so we can have. So they're like, what should we do? Um, somebody should say. Um, I say we just leave the Noldor to their devices, right? They made their bed, let's let them lie in it. I'm thinking maybe Aule says that, right? Um, But then somebody else jumps in and says, well, yeah, but dude, don't forget, it's not just the Noldor, right? We're also leaving not only the Sindar and the other, you know, the others of the elves who didn't come across to Valinor in the first place, but we're also, like, there's also the Adain, right? There's also the whole second children of Iluvatar. We should do something to save them, shouldn't we? Um, you know, it's not just about the Noldor and then somebody probably Manway, maybe, or somebody, uh, should say, well, hang on guys. Like, remember the last war we had with Morgoth, there was quite a bit of property damage. Um, if we go over again, we risk destroying the entire second kindred, uh, before they've even had a chance to grow. Uh, so, you know, we can't, we can't just do that right now. And then somebody else can say, 
a sort of a milder version, not a milder version, but a more positive version of Aule's initial angry comment saying, yes, the Nold, like besides the Noldor have chosen and we need it's it would not be right for us not to honor their freedom of choice. Right. They they have chosen what to do. Um, and, you know, we need to we need to honor that. Um, also, imagine the lawsuits. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Somebody could say, but it's in the text and we can't change the text. So we can't, we can't do that. Um, I think, um, I, I think for sure we need to, to make it, make it clear that, um, that they are neither spiteful nor lazy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So the upshot, and I think, yeah, and yeah. I, th- I think like, you know, one way, one thing we can do is say is if we connect it to, um, to the sun and the moon is we can make it clear that sort of the idea here is to, is to, is, is, you know, to try and try and prevent the greater evil, which is going over there and then just destroying everything. Right. Um, but also, but also, you know, emphasize this point about, about allowing the Noldor to have freedom and freedom of choice and point out that, you know, that, but that they're they're taking what actions they can to enable that and to give them at least a fighting chance. So things like the sun and the moon, it's like you know, well, uh, Morgoth likes darkness. That's how he operates best. So let's at least shine some light on him and yes. and give and give the Noldor you know a sign of hope so they know that that they haven't been abandoned. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking the overall flow of the conversation goes like this. The first question that they're trying to decide on is, do we go over right? You know, do we do we go right now and de- and defeat Morgoth and help them, right? Because Mor- Morgoth broke probation, right? He he did all kinds of bad things. He destroyed the trees, right? They have every kind. Of, you know, they were just chasing him. They were trying to recapture him when he was fleeing. So they know where he is now, right? He set himself up in Angband. Uh, so Tolkas, I would think, would be like, um, permission, please, to go over and kick Morgoth's butt and drag him back to Valinor, right? Tolkas would even assume, I would think, that that's the next step, right? You just sent me out to chase him up north and I didn't catch him. Now I know where he is. Can I go nab him, right? Should be Tolkas's question. <coughs> and um, anyway, so, so, so the first question is, do we go over there? And they're going to decide that question in the negative. No, we don't go over there. And we can have a lot of those, <coughs> a lot of those debates that we were just talking about. Um, of, you know, no, it would destroy the place. You know, uh, I, I, I want to, you know, Aule's anger at the Noldor and wanting to leave them to stew and suffer the consequences of their action. The more positive, maybe Mando's saying, about, you know, about the, you know, the, 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 their free will and stuff. Um, and uh, anyway, so we, they first they decide the question, are we going? And they decide, no, no, we're not going to go. So now what? Right. Then in, 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 in which case, what do we do? Um, and there are two things, right? One is we're going to do something, right? Um, and the answer is the sun and the moon, right? Yes, we're going to do something. We're going to, uh, we're, we're going to, we're, we're not just going to like leave Morgoth to have a free hand. Uh, we are going to, we're going to change the game completely here and we're going to create the sun and moon. So, okay. Um, so they, they agree they're going to create the sun and moon. Uh, and, and that will be like a very, you know, explicitly part of like a very proactive way of them protecting middle earth, uh, from the evils of Morgoth, not preventing it, right. Not, not 
shutting him down completely, but them helping and supporting the people of Middle Earth. <clears throat> then we have to have somebody who is a very conservative voice who, who suggests the hiding of Valinor, who says, like, the other thing we have to do is to make sure that nothing like this can ever happen again, right? Make sure that no evil can ever again make its way into Valinor. Um, and people agree with that, right? So, so they decide they're going to wall themselves up. And then, but then somebody should object to that, saying, wait, we can't just fort up and, and live behind our walls and, and like, yeah, okay, like sun and moon, that's cool. Uh, I'm not saying that doesn't accomplish anything, but we need to do more than that. We can't just close the door and turn our backs on Middle Earth. Um, and I'm thinking, this is Olmo, right? This is Olmo's argument. Um, and somebody can basically say to him, no, like, we can still be in, we, we can't go over there, but we can still be involved. And, and I, I, I imagine almost saying something along the lines of, yeah, I intend to be right. <laughs> Try and stop me. I'm totally going to. Right. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely think that, um, uh, it's, um, it ends with almost declared intention to continue influencing events, you know, to continue taking a hand in what's going on over, you know, even though he can't participate directly, even though he can't fight against Morgoth, he can still take part in events. And I think we could even, you know, leave with some implication that he's not going to be alone in that. You know, others can agree with him. You know, we can even just show by like the nodding of other heads around the table that, you know, around the circle, that there are others who are planning to do the same thing that he is uh, and to take a hand. Uh, And that then, sets us up for suggesting the intervention of the Valar in events, uh, of, of other, of, of non-Olmo Valar, uh, in the, uh, in the events to come. Um, yes, Mario, I, I can't imagine Yavanna being like, okay, no, I'm good. Like, I, uh, I'm not going to worry about the rest of Middle-earth. Of course she's going to worry about the rest of Middle-earth, right? Uh, she's going to, she's going to take a hand in some ways. Or may, um, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. Um, uh, but yes, Mariel, Olmo, I would think Olmo would be fairly pugnacious about this, right? Um, you know, like some could be like pushing to say like, so like, are we in agreement that we, w- that we, uh, you know, will not aid the Noldor? And Olmo would be like, heck no. And, you know, I don't care if you're in agreement or not. I'm not doing it. You know, I'm, you know, and, and Olmo is, um, uh, strikes me as as kind of a chaotic good character. Like he doesn't really remember the conversation. Even in in the late writing, even in the uh, the version of the Tuor story that gets published in Unfinished Tales, the one he started after writing the Lord of the Rings that he didn't get past the gates of Gondolin. Um, in the speech that Olmo gives to Tuor in that version, you know he's he's aware of like the doom that is to come and his own role of like acting it out. He doesn't, he's not, he's not asking for permission before he does what he does. And in fact, even in the earlier writings, it's like the other way around. He, he's like the other Valar are not taking a hand. He is taking a hand. And so he, the message that he gives to Tuor in the early version for Tuor to deliver to Turgon is almost is, is, is saying to Turgon, if you go out into battle against Morgoth, 
I will deliver the rest of the Valar. I will go back to Valinor and I will get the rest of the Valar to join me in helping you against Morgoth, right? So if you do this, I will promise to assist you, not only myself, but I'm going to deliver everybody else. But he wasn't sent as an emissary of the rest of them. He, he's a free agent. Uh, and he was just like, leave the rest of them to me. I'll, I'll, I'll bring them, right? Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think, I think he's, uh, um, I would even be comfortable having Olmo walk out. He doesn't have to storm out. Like it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to end on a really bad note or anything, but just to have Olmo make it clear, you know, y'all can make whatever decisions you want. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I fully intend to take a role in what's going on in middle earth. And I'm not going to leave them behind. Um, and again, to have the implication that he's not certainly not alone in that. Um, yeah, yeah. Corey, I have a I have a quick question. Um, how do we how do we reconcile the reluctance to intervene now because of the destruction that that might cause to Middle Earth mm-hmm. and the way that might endanger the children with the future decision to go to war in the War of Wrath? Mm-hmm. Um, in some sense, in some sense, the War of Wrath justifies the decision because you can point and say, see, <laughs> yep, destroyed Balerion. <laughs> yes, yes. We're right. Um, but nonetheless, you know, what what is it that really what like, I don't think this is I don't think this is really answered in the text. You it's know, not. You know, I like, mean, like, it... like, like they're they're what 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 what. What Tolkien emphasizes is their change of heart toward the Noldor, but what they what he doesn't what he doesn't he doesn't address either of these other objections. He doesn't right. address the like yeah, but what about what about you know how this might wreck everything? And he also doesn't doesn't address sort of the freedom of choice type thing. I mean, it could yeah. be that could be that by the end they recognize that freedom of choice has been rendered basically you know basically a moot point because well, Morgoth though, is right. Morgoth has defeated it. Right. Though I would say the fact that it hinges on the message of Arendil is also a kind of acknowledgement of that freedom oh, of choice true. as well, right? Okay, yeah. That it's not until one of them uh, makes it through and comes and, and, and uh, like, they have to be asked in person, right, by one of the, by a representative of, you know, the Noldor and the rest of them, right? True, yeah, um, okay. So that does kind of acknowledge the, the thing. As for the other reason, the... Um, the I guess that the the main you're right that the text doesn't address it exactly, but the thing that I would say, how I would explain it is, the time is not ripe for it yet. Um, right. Yes, the War of Wrath does destroy a continent, so you know, like there you go, um, it does justify the earlier thing. And there are several ways in which you can understand the not ripeness of the time, right? The unripeness mm-hmm. of the time. Um, on the one hand, again, there's the concern about the Adain. The Adain are still relatively early in their careers, right, in their existence. Um, so there's a greater chance that a um, a continent-wide cataclysm might end up doing away with the entire race of the Adain, since there aren't that many of them yet um, at that at, at this point, and we want to allow them to to sort of spread around a little bit. But more importantly, I think it's not really practical like that really at all. It's just like that they know they have this, they have this sense that, uh, um, the time is not right. Like, is this is not how the music goes, right? This still, this, this is, uh, this still needs to, this still needs to play out before we went over and made war on 
Morgoth. And I think this, you know, man, this can be Manway's like judgment in the end, right? He can say, like, before we went and made war on, on Morgoth, now we can't do that again, or we shouldn't do that again, or the time has not come for us to do that again. Um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking that the line from Elrond in the Council of Elrond is floating through my mind. You know, now is the hour of the Shire folk, right? Um, like, you know, Manway saying, like, now is, the, now is the hour of the firstborn. Like, this is their story. They have chosen. They have set themselves on this path, and they need to, you know, they need, we, we need to allow their story to, to play out. It's not, uh, it is not for us to just, uh, if we were to break in and circumvent events, uh, then, you know, we would be like Melkor trying to drown out the music, right? Um, this is this is how this theme of the music is going, and we need to let it play out. Um, the time it's not it's not time. the 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 the, the moment in the music has not come, and um, uh, and but it but it has later on. And and so they will recognize that. I think they should talk about that explicitly when they're discussing when they're talking over the A. Arendel situation after he comes, right? Um, Manway can say after they hear from A. Arendel, now is the time. The time has come, right? Now that the A. Arendel's arrival is the signal that we've been waiting for, we should, you know, now is the time for us to move. It wasn't right before. Um, so it's hard because I know that that answer is not a super satisfying answer, to people, right? You know, just to be like. I think there is. The time is I think there's also time. there's also a kind of mundane, pragmatic explanation too, which is you know, I mean, they're they're you know, like like, um, if they don't intervene when they do at the time of the War of Wrath, I mean, there's sort of a you know, well, we don't want to go in there and cause war and kill everyone, but. Morgoth's basically killing everyone already as <laughs> it is. They're all pretty much already dead. So I mean, you know, yeah. yeah. The uh, the the great reduction of the potential collateral damage of uh, uh, of the War of Wrath. Yeah, exactly. Since the, the place is all entirely overrun by orcs anyway, so what's the harm? Yeah, I mean, I, there there is a certain pragmatic, uh, like basically, Beleriand is already destroyed. The War of Wrath is merely its funeral, right? It's not its it's not its downfall. It's not its destruction, really. Um, so yeah, I mean that that also that also does does kind of work. But again, to me, that's only a that's only like a a, a sort of a secondary thing compared to the main point. That's, right? that's really that's really a consequence of the story playing out. Exactly, it's an outer manifestation of the fact that the time is now and the time was not before. Um, and yes, Marie is also right that Morgoth's own investment of his power makes him much weaker by the time of the War of Wrath. So that's another reason why the t- it's, oh, that's tr- the cataclysm that's would probably have been worse had they been um, had they been fighting with Morgoth, you know, closer to the you know the peak of his powers. Um, so yeah, absolutely. That, that again, but uh, but to me, all of these things are just different ways of saying the time is not right yet. Um, and I don't think that we need seek refuge in, f- in purely pragmatic answers. I think that people who are seeking purely pr- pragmatic explanations for the question, why didn't the Valar come earlier, are in a deep way missing the point, really. I mean, it's not that there aren't any. It's not that any can't be contrived or that, uh, that none exist. But none of them are the point. None of them are the real reason. The real reason is kind of the big, vague reason. It's not time yet. They're not, it's, not, it's not how it's supposed to happen. 
Um, and yeah, Tony, exactly. Eru would have a word to say about this, and he is saying it, right? And Manway's hearing it. And that's, you know, it's the way it is. Um, and, uh, you know, people who are sort of thinking about the story on a different level and other people in the story who are, uh, you know, interacting with the story on a different level might not be satisfied by that answer, but it's still the answer. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the character of Olmo. Uh, I mean, he's always been one of my favorite, but sort of seeing him continue will be kind of fun, I think. Olmo means to misbehave. Um, Okay. We got to get back to Doriath, however, because we have a spider attack going on. Um, So remember, we had uh, Tevildo and the cats scouting out, and they found the location of Menegroth, and they come back, and um, so we have the suggestion that Sauron tasks Tevildo with coordinating the attack on Doriath and killing their leader. Um, Because, yes, the spiders aren't an army. Yeah, the spiders are a swarm. They're not an army. Um, Now... Tevildo and the cats are not an army either. There's nobody, there's, there's no military angle on this whole thing. Um, but there is, Tevildo at least is the leader of the other cats um, and is tasked with pointing Shelob and the other spiders in the right direction, right? Leading them to where they need to go. Now, Erokeb was saying that he finds the idea of Tevildo being tasked with killing, killing Melian very amusing. Um, Yes, Sauron clearly knows that Melian is in Dorath, Doriath, but I, Eric Hebb, I agree with your suggestion that he would just kind of underestimate how powerful Melian herself could be. Um, the girdle hasn't happened yet, and before the girdle happens, is there any reason that Sauron should really take Melian seriously? I mean, yes, Melian is a Maya, but so is Sauron, so is Tevildo, for crying out loud, right? Uh, so, you know... She's a big deal, but they're all big deals, right? So I, I, I think that's sort of, to me, sufficient for Sauron to believe that he and his, his uh, like, b- b- for him to make the miscalculation in judgment, ultimately, which is what it's clearly going to be, um, that they can take Melian down. Um, so... So, yeah, uh, Tony, I think we have to have Sheila be the de facto, de facto leader of the spider swarm as we don't have any other spiders that we want to introduce. <laughs> I think you know, we don't have any other named spiders uh, and uh, we know that Sheila is there. So uh, we might as well use Sheila. Um, we could, of course, if we wanted to have another spider whom Baron could kill, if we wanted to have there be an even bigger than Sheila, have Sheila be the little sister to the really serious big deal spider uh, you know, greatest child of Ungoliant who gets killed by Baron on the way down to Doriath. I mean, we could do something like that, but, um, you know, why add spiders? I think uh, that doesn't really seem necessary to me. Besides, it's cool to have Sheila be like, you know, the big bad even here in season three, so that when we meet, when Sam Gamgee fights her in, you know, season 24, uh, it just emphasizes the incredible awesomeness of that fact. So, um, yep. Yep. I think that'll all be good. Um, yeah. So she did, yeah, she did kill some werewolves, but again, like 
that's why he's up the ante here, right? He's not sending in a pack of werewolves. He's sending in a massive swarm of gigantic spiders, plus his whole, like, squad of giant evil death cats, right? So, you know, it's fine. Like, yeah, she's, she's, uh, she's, she's not a wimp. He doesn't think that she's nothing. But I think there's, you know, reason for him to calculate. Uh, I, it seems to me a justifiable miscalculation on Sauron's part that they can that they could take down um, that they could take down Melian. Um, okay, yeah. So yes, the spy. I agree. The spider should be a completely unexpected surprise. The 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 elves. They're prepared for orcs. They're prepared for werewolves. Uh, Beleg certainly has uh, caught sight of some of the giant cats, so they're aware of all those things. Then the spiders come in, and no one, nobody expects a swarm of giant spiders, right? Um, so um, so yes, we should see. Elves being destroyed. I, 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 I think that essentially what we should show is that if it were simply a matter of hand-to-hand combat, the spiders would totally have won. Like, basically, I think that we should show that Sauron's calculation, miscalculation is not a big miscalculation. He's right. The spiders could do it. Except <clears throat> there's a couple things that they didn't anticipate, right? They don't expect... Uh, Dairon and Luthien, I think, are a surprise, right? Dairon and Luthien sing. You know, the, the, their 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 song, their music repels the spiders in a way which is uh, which is unforeseen uh, by Sauron. And then Melian's, uh, you know, the power of uh, Melian's exertion of her power and her establishment of the girdle is totally unexpected. Um, but yeah, I do think in the preliminary version, we the the preliminary moves we show the elves are are no match for them. Like when the spiders are swarming and the cats are moving, the the remaining elves, the home guard of Doriath, which is all that's left because the army's out with Thingol, um, the home guard of Doriath is getting is getting slaughtered. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Dave, how do you think we do the music thing? We need to have Luthien singing and dancing, and we need to have Dairon playing his instrument, right? How do we do the music battle with the spiders? <laughs> this is probably, quite possibly the single, single hardest thing we will ever deal with in, in, in the course of the Silmarillion film project will be how to do the music. How to do song music magic. Battles. Yeah. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this one at least is a little bit easier than uh, than say the the sing off with yeah. uh, with Sauron because because this one you can kind of make it look almost like sort of a you know chanty spell casting. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, but I honestly, I man, I have no clue what's the right way to do this. To, so that like like on the one hand, on the one hand. If we just do it as described in the text, it'll look really stupid. Um, on the other hand, if we pull a Peter Jackson, we just give up on this concept and we go to shooting fireballs. Like that's right. also or, or like, very dissatisfying. You know, give uh, give Luthien a pair of swords and make her ninja girl. You know, yeah. Also, exactly. incredibly dissatisfying. Incredibly dissatisfying. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Halstein, I don't think it's a great idea for Luthien to be singing the Itsy Bitsy Spider song, um, though it's a good suggestion. Um, <laughs> uh, also, what about old Tom 
Tom Navi. <laughs> right. No, hey, no, I, that happens, right? That that I want there to be, and this is a direct challenge. Is that Daron? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's Daron. This he is a, that. this is a direct challenge to 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 Philip and any other of our composers. I want Daron's song to be echoed in Bilbo's song. When Bilbo say like it should be song like Bilbo's not aware of it, right? But we should hear it. We should be able to hear the echo. I'm not saying that Luthien utters the words Adder Copper, Tom Noddy, or Lazy Lob, uh Milthaliel, but um but we totally should have some kind of clear connection. Uh so that when you play those two scenes side by side, you can you can hear the connection that absolutely must occur. Um so, all right, Dave, here's my only suggestion. By the way, I have a, a Finrod-Sauron music battle idea, but we'll get to that later on. Um, the Here's my idea here. Ultimately, we're going to do the girdle, right? And my, the thought for the, my, my picture of the girdle is Melian steps out of the gates of Minagroth and crosses the river, and she sings, right? And she's singing her song, and this, like, you know, uh, ex- like explosion of light, you know, which shows like the, the, you know, blast effect, you know, all around this and the spiders get pushed back. So she just sings and this like radius of light, which repels, you know, the spiders and, and they're all running away and fleeing as like the, the, the light is coming and then the light stops. Um, the, the, the sphere of light that goes out from her as she sings stops at the edges of Doriath and fades. I mean, it's not always glowing like a glowing dome, you know, in the middle of the continent. Um, but, you know, maybe it's still vis- visible in some kind of very faint shimmer or something so that you can see that it's still there. Um, but, you know, the, the power of her song being visually represented by light is what makes sense to me there. Um, and especially since with the oncoming of the spiders, these are the children of Ungoliant, right? So they should be making darkness. So I'm thinking like we're getting all like Doriath is becoming all murkwoody and dark uh, as the spiders are closing in. And so that 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 darkness, you know, the unlight sort of unlight darkness, at least of the spiders um, is being, you know, repel- that's another reason why I think light is so important with the establishment of the girdle, as it not only makes the spiders physically free, but visibly cleanses the forest uh, so that we see what was beginning to look kind of Mirkwoodish is, uh, is, is cleansed uh, as they, as they go out. Um, anyway, so, um, and yes, Mariel makes an excellent point that it sets up the fact that the sun and moon are going to bother evil creatures, right? This idea of like them cringing at the light. Um, I agree. That's a good, uh, that's a good foreshadowing there. Um, so, so Dave, my suggestion is that Dairon and Luthien's music is kind of like that. I think that their music should not be offensive but defensive. That is to say, it's not that they come out, you know, singing and dancing, and their singing and dancing slaughters bunches of spiders somehow, right? Uh, I think instead that their singing and dancing should merely repel the spiders that like this, you know, the, the show, the spiders about to swarm across, uh, and enter into like, we show the gates of Menegroth and the spiders like, um, uh, you know, sort of like beating on it and ripping at it and trying to get into Menegroth and then Dairon and Luthien come out or, or Luthien comes out. Dairon would be behind her. He's her 
supporting instrumental cast, right? She's the main show. It's um, like a it's like a precursor to the girdle. Yeah, exactly. So can, she comes. Can we out, make the, we make the girdle something that is maintained by by song magic. Well, so there's yeah. a so there's a perpetual elf band. There's always. <laughs> I'm I'm imagining now like the elf musician time clock, you know, they got to punch in and out. I've got, I've got second shift for maintaining the girdle song today. Yeah. Um, uh, (laughs) But anyway, so yeah, have Luthien step out of the shattering gates, right? And the spiders just be drawing back from her and she sings and Dairon comes and joins her and we got his music and her song and she's dancing and, you know, the light is sort of glowing around them uh, as they sing and she dances and the spiders are like pulling back and they're uneasy and they don't know what's happening and then have Melian step forward and she joins in the song and when she joins in the song, that's when, you know, we get like the nuclear blast of the light and the spiders all scurrying away. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that we, we, that's my thought for how that could happen. Um, that the spiders can't approach them or attack them while they are singing and dancing seems to me a relatively neutral way to show the power of the song over them without making it too hokey. Uh, But, I don't understand why. Can somebody explain to me why we don't have the girdle yet? Oh, sorry. When are we going to have, if we don't do the girdle now, when are we going to do, I thought we were doing the girdle now. I thought that was the whole point of, of this scene. I thought the whole reason we were going to do the spiders was to lead up to the girdle. So I was, I am, I am, I am confused by that. Um, I, I want to, I definitely want to do the, I definitely want to, want to do the girdle here. And yeah, why can't uh, this, could this scene be the the proto girdle, and then uh, after the after the battle is won, then Melian takes steps to make it permanent? I don't know. No, I, I kind of think the battle, like the establishment of the girdle, is the winning of the battle, right? I mean, so the spider swarm is Sauron's ace in the hole. Right, that's what he was negotiating. That's what we set up earlier in the season. He's got his werewolf army. He's got his cat scouts. He's got his vampire scouts. He's got his orc armies. Um, but he's got, and then he's got his ace in the hole, right? And his ace in the hole is his is his uh, uh, his alliance with Shelob and the spiders. So he's unleashed his ace in the hole, and it looks like they're going to win. And the only reason they don't win um, is Melian and the girdle. I think Thingol and the rest of the army coming back. It, you know, maybe we can have a moment with, uh, you know, with Beleg inside, right, saying, like, surely, you know, Thingol will return soon from his battle in the, you know, in the east. Um, and they're hoping, but, you know, there's 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 only a small hope that even Thingol with his army is going to be able to repel all these spiders because they were just slaughtering the elves that stood up to them in the forest. So, um, so what are they getting? So it looks like it's completely hopeless until Luthien steps out and starts singing. And then Melian steps out and starts singing. And so it ends up being not Thingol or any of the warriors, but uh, Luthien and finally Melian who ultimately defeat the spiders. Um, I think that Thingol then returns. He can still fight them, right? Um, Thingol's army is returning. And so I think he comes, I, 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 I see Thingol and his army approaching Doriath as the girdle goes up, right? So they hear hear the song. They see the light, right? Um, and they're, you know, sort of taken aback and impressed. And then they, and they see, like, you know, some, not all, you know, of the spiders who are fleeing from there. Um, and they 
would then hunt down some of the spiders that have uh, that have fled on that side. But most of the spiders get away. I mean, that's why they they and they they take refuge up in Arid Gorgoroth, and that's how we get the whole Arid Gorgoroth situation. Um, and why they're right there and they're near the girdle, but they're outside it and they're so angry about it, and um, and they're kind of hovering around on the on the outskirts of on the outskirts of Doriath. So, um, I like it. This so, seems yeah. like the time. Some uh, some of the um, some folks like Marie Prosser were pointing out. I, I guess we wanted for some reason they wanted the spider attacks to last longer. I. I I'm. I don't see why. Like, I think this is yeah. the the major spider battle should be one episode, and then the spiders remain a threat on the outskirts of the. Because I mean, keep in mind the girdle, the girdle's not a doesn't isn't a, a complete solution. Right. It keeps keeps them out of Doriath and Meningroth, but um, but but they're still out there, and yeah. they harry travelers. Yeah. And remember that sort of the place where the sorcery of Sauron meets the girdle of Melian becomes a, you know, place of madness. And Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I don't think we need to have Thingol involved in any kind of, uh, uh, big way. Right. Um, he can, you know, we can have him mopping up spiders if we want, but we don't even have to, he can just come back right after this. We've already given Thingol an opportunity to be awesome in battle uh, when he comes and 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 destroys the Ark Army, you know, d- d- gives the final blow that destroys the Ark Army and saves the last of the of the Green Elves, um, so he's already been awesome in battle. I don't think we need and uh, what we're establishing by doing that by having him return just in time to see the girdle throw uh, thrown up and the spiders fleeing um, makes it pretty clear that it is not Thingol and his army that is protecting Doriath. Right. It's Melian and her power that is protecting Doriath. And that's good. We want to establish that, really. Um, and, we, and, and, and we're doing it at a good point. Right. Instead of merely showing Thingol being a weak stay at home king whose wife takes care <laughs> of everything, which there's a serious risk he could become <clears throat> by having him return triumphant from a battle to find that his wife Melian has, you know, supernaturally secured the region and prevented anybody from ever attacking them again puts him, I think, puts him in, he's not incapable, right? He's not a complete loser, but it's Melian's power, not his, that's protecting Doriath, no question, so. Okay, so it seems like the concern, the concern among the the folks in the QA uh, um, is, is, is that, one, that this is, like, anticlimactic, if the spiders arrive and then immediately get driven off, and also maybe this episode's getting packed. Like, I think that's fine, um, Maybe we introduce the spiders this episode, and we show the aftermath of their first attack, like a bunch of dead elves or whatever, and then we push the push the the Diron Melian scene to another episode or something. If that if the concern okay. is about things being overloaded, yeah. if that fits, I think I mean, that, yeah, I'd be fine with that. Simple fix. Yeah, yeah. that's a. I feel like the simple simple fix. Yeah, I, exactly. but I don't know. I mean, do we need the spiders to be like a a, a like a threat that lasts all season? Um, no. I mean, maybe it could be, maybe, maybe there's a f- two or three episodes of like, um, of the spiders being like a secret threat in the woods and like the, 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 
the elves don't know what's going on. We just, well, we keeps, where's Fred? We went out on a scouting patrol. <laughs> he never came back, right? Like, like, we could do something like that where yeah. where it's, no, it's a mystery I, that lasts half a season or something. I kind of prefer that, like, you know, there's, there's already the cat sneaking around, right? So I kind of like the mm-hmm. fact that there is something mysterious sneaking around in the woods. And when Beleg comes back and is like, there are some bloody great cats sneaking around out there that they think they've solved it. Right. And so they're like, oh, OK, so let us let us prepare to be assaulted by giant evil cats. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're prepared for that. And then, you know, they didn't see, you know, nobody expects the giant, the swarm of giant spiders. Um, I think it's much better if that just kind of swoops in for the from the elves perspective out of nowhere. Um, sure. But uh, but yeah. So, I mean, if for pacing reasons and I mean, I will say I think that uh, uh, to me, the the narrative shape of episodes 12 and 13 are sufficiently unclear that I, I I think it would be fine if we wanted to have only the initial attack of the spiders and it looked like the spiders are about to destroy everything and then cut away or even end the episode they're there or whatever and then return to that at the beginning of the next episode. We, we could do that if we, if we needed to, if it made the next two episodes better. Um, but... Um, Writer discretion. Yeah, you yeah, guys, we'll uh, you guys solve that. We'll see. Well, and it might become clearer as we move forward, uh, thinking about episode twelve. On the subject of which, oh, sorry, brief. Yes, make sure that Cyros comes back. Um, make sure that Cyros comes back with the green elves. By the way, Ale wanting to buy some real estate. I say we push that into season four. Do we need that to happen now? I think we can establish Ale in Nanelmoth when we're doing like, can't, can't we make that part of the gripping of Beleriand and its realms plot line, uh, you know, in, in season four, I don't think we need to interrupt the action to be like, and by the way, let's do a real estate deal. So, um, I'm kind of thinking we can push, we can push Aeol back. Um, uh, that that I mean I maybe we can think about it. We certainly don't want to do it in this episode, um, but I agree we should make sure that we should show Cyros coming back home with uh, with Thingol. Cyros is going to be uh, one of Thingol's councilmen from now on. Um, oh, so what, one question about that: um, Do we if we're if we're going to fiddle a little bit with sort of the order of events or the timing here uh, yeah. across a few episodes? Do we want like do we want to say for sure that? Um, that that um, Thingol arrives before, like after the creation of the girdle. So whenever the creation of the girdle happens, Thingol arrives arrives after that. Yes. Or do we? Yes, well, after. Do we have flexibility here? Definitely after. All right. Yeah. And actually, quick question: Are green? Can green elves get through the girdle? Can green elves get through the girdle? Who yeah, who can sure. who who's who is who is supposed to be able to make their way through the girdle, and who is supposed to be kept out? People with invitations can get through the girdle. Oh, okay. It's uh, not even just any. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think it's. Um, I think. I think we shouldn't. We don't need to specify at this point. But my my thought is. At this point, it's sort of designed to let all elves through. Um, or maybe it lets all elves through, but it won't like, I think it'd be kind of, kind of cool if the, if, 
the guilt of the kinslaying actually prevented it, and people didn't understand why. But, um, but, uh, but we'll see. But I like it. Later. Yeah. I, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would kind of like to have like one of the sons of Fanor try to visit and not be able to, and nobody really understand, uh, why he turns back. But anyway, that's a, that's a, that's clearly a season four question. So we'll, we'll, we'll push that on anyway. Um, so next time, speaking of episode 12, as we were, uh, our next, <clears throat> so three questions focused on three different characters. Fingolfin. Fingolfin is finally going to arrive in Middle-earth. We've, we are finished the crossing of the Helcaraxa in episode 12. How do we make his arrival in Middle-earth fitting? Right? I mean, he, what does he do? How does he arrive? Um, how do we handle that? I, I, I want to make sure, be, and by fitting, I mean fit as a fitting end of the crossing of the Helcaraxa subplot, right? For the, the decisions that they have made and why they have persevered and you know, what they're thinking when they arrive. We need to make sure that it fits with that. We need to make it a sufficiently, you know, sort of climactic moment, right? Uh, to have the kind of effect, the effect of that in the text is very great, right? And I want to make sure that we can, uh, we can make sure that the arrival of Fingolfin has the kind of impact that we want. So I want to make sure that we're really thinking through that there. Um, Kierden. Uh We also had Kierden discovering the burned ships. What exactly does he do? What's the conclusion? I mean, I, I want to make sure that the Kierden story, we've had this sort of Kierden and the refugees of the, of the Phalas sort of subplot uh, going on for several episodes now through this season. And I, I wouldn't want that plot just to kind of peter out lamely. Um, I mean, ultimately, what does he plan to do is kind of go tell uh, Thingle about it, right? But that by itself seems to me a touch on the lame side. Um, what does he think? What is it? I mean, there should at least be thought of doing something else or finding out more. And what it's just, it seems to me if he just finds the burned ships and he's like, huh, yeah, the masterwork of the Teleri, yeah, uh, all burned up and destroyed. Um, unidentified bones of uh, of an elf among them. Uh, uh, what happened here? Who died here? What did this? I don't know. Let's just go back and talk to Thingle about it. Like that seems to be that seems to be uh, uh, lame. So I want I want to think through basically what's the end of Kierden's story here in season three, because um, uh, I want us to be thinking about that. And then third, Mithros. Um, we're going to have Mithros accepting the parley. Uh, at which he's going to be, um, uh, at which he's going to be captured, uh, and which will lead to him being stapled to the wall in episode thirteen. What's he thinking? What, uh, how does this work? Um, is he just duped? Yeah. How do we make him not look dumb? Marielle is exactly what I'm thinking. It, it, is, is is he just suckered in, right? And if not, why not? Um, and and uh, anyway, so I, <clears throat> I want to make sure. And of course, we also have now the additional complexities of the post-Feanor sort of political climate among the, the sons of Feanor as well, right? So like, for instance, what is Kurafin's role in Mithros accepting the Parley, right? Does, is, is, it, is this part of Kurafin's scheme to get rid of, of older brother, right? Um, does yeah? So does 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 Kurafin not only advise him, Mariel? Does Kurafin maneuver him into accepting, right? Hoping that this is gonna get older brother out of the way. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, there are lots of ways we could play that. So I, I want to make sure that we're thinking through uh, that in detail. So those are the, those. These are the three things that I was thinking of. I would add to this now in response to the uh, discussion we had earlier. We need lots and lots of Amros. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I would say it in in response to what we were just talking about thinking about the girdle, if we do add the girdle here, I want to think how we do that and how we make it fit uh, thematically. We have the rising of the moon happening in this episode as well, so um, you know, how do we have the the the, uh, the the raising of the girdle and the rising of the moon um, are, as you know, Mariel, as you were suggesting earlier, there's some parallels there. We want to make sure that we're handling those parallels thoughtfully there. So, anyway, those are my questions for next time, things I want you to think about as we're moving into uh, episode 12. Um, thanks, everybody, as always, for joining us. Thank you, Dave, for... Uh, uh, that was, a, that was a good episode. Usual. Yeah, yeah, that's really fun. So, um, so I'll say thanks two weeks, March 23rd. We're back to our regular schedule. So Friday, March 23rd at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, as always. Uh, and uh, look forward to we're getting towards the very end of the season now. So I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.